Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to episode 227 with my guest, Cassie Snyder. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, read, read in the forums, post there, uh, read blogs, guest blogs, uh, fill out a survey so we can get to know you, read how other people filled out surveys, uh, or financially support the show. All those things you can do at the website. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at oh, who gives a shit. That's what it should be, at oh, God, who gives a shit. Uh, let's get to some surveys. This is filled out by, um, This is the, these are all from the struggle in a sentence survey. And uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Rack's dad about his alcoholism, hoping the hockey game goes into overtime so I can have another drink. Bananas uh, gives us a snapshot from her life and her codependency. She writes, manipulating my ex-boyfriend, a heroin addict at the time, to come over to my house by telling him he left $20 in my car. Maybe if he comes over, he'll see that he wants me again. I'm so desperate that I use his addiction to feed my own. God, that is such a profound sentence. I'm so desperate that I use his addiction to feed my own. I take $20 of my own money out of the ATM, text him, and 20 minutes later, he's at my place. This is filled out by Rad, who describes his depression. Sometimes I feel like being depressed is all I know how to be anymore. Whenever something brings me joy, it's a new sensation that I can't quite cope with. I'm depressed, but I'm comfortable with it, and I hate change. Mac90 gives us a snapshot from his life. Uh, I had a great week. Amazing, really. I did well at work, had a great time with friends. Things were awesome with my girlfriend, and I just felt happy. Fast forward to the end of the week. I wake up with a weight in my head and a knot in my stomach. I do nothing. I talk to no one. 
I feel crazy that at any moment I might put my hand through a window, fuck a stranger, carve myself up with a knife. I find a razor blade and leave my arm bloody. It was only a matter of time. This is filled out by, I think, the same person. They call themselves Mac15, but um, about his depression. It feels like climbing a mountain that keeps crumbling beneath you. I really related to that one. Uh, Snapshot from his life. I told my parents about my brother sexually abusing me. Uh, I... all right, her, her, or his brother had been sexually abusing him. I told my parents about the sexual abuse I experienced after it had been going on for about three months. My parents did everything, quote, right, technically. They contacted police and got us both therapy, but we were always supposed to act, quote, normal. Example, my mother took me to a detective to give a statement about what happened with my brother. Afterwards, my parents took my brother and I bowling together because we were just a normal family, Right. Uh, This is filled out by Max's mom, who writes about uh, her alcoholism. I better make this glass of wine last. It's the end of the bottle, and once the wine is done, the tears have to stop. That that sounds like a a delightful party of one. I have been there. This is filled out by Lump, who uh, gives us a snapshot from uh, her life. Um... I accept an invitation to a party or group get-together. However, starting the morning of the event, I begin to feel heart-racing fear. I want to throw up, hurt myself, get into a car accident, or anything to get me out of it. I catch myself grinding my teeth in this weird electrical sensation up and down my spine. The relief after I cancel, always via text, is orgasmic. I don't relate to the intensity of what you experience, but oh boy, have I experienced uh, cancel orgasms. Those are uh, best experienced in a recliner. There, There is a sense of relief uh, to canceling. Yeah. And then uh, finally, this one is from Lil Deb, who gives us a snapshot from her life. Uh, said this morning to the snuggly kitty in bed by my side, Sorry, I have to get up now. This is what humans do. We get up and pretend to be okay. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Cassie Snyder, who I corresponded with through email. Do you remember what the first email was about? Um, I don't remember. I think I was just thanking you for... Like existing and um, letting, I, always, I always enjoy those. Yeah, and uh, I was just letting you know that I like the podcast. 
I think. How did how did we come about discussing you being on the podcast? Um, was it? I remember your first email was funny, and I was like, oh, she might be a she might be a good guest, but I don't usually do that if there's not uh, some like underlying issue or thing that you're struggling with. Was it anxiety or what do you do you? Um, I guess it's not important if you if you can't remember. Well, I think my first email I mentioned that um, I listened to the podcast as a welcome break from my day job of karaoke, and right. you're a, a um, karaoke uh, DJ. Right? Yes, yeah. And and I, I remember the phrase you used was to keep me from jamming knitting needles into my ears. Uh, that's my constant daydream. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's how it came about. And then I was going to be out here for um, Lit Quake, which is the literary festival that happens in San Francisco uh, once a year. So I put on like a big thing there. And then okay. I just took my shoes off. How does that grab you? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do the same. Okay. Yeah. And I don't feel so... Uh... I don't know what the word is. Smelly? <laughs> my feet actually don't... Uh, uh, nobody's ever accused me of having uh, smelly feet, but um, I just love to have my shoes off when when I record. I just love it. When I do the ins and outs by myself, uh, I, I just love... I got like this little... It used to be a TV tray, and I found that I love putting my feet up on it, my uh, my socked feet up on it, and it just feels so... I don't know. It just feels so comforting. Yeah, I don't usually wear shoes, but I mean, I I wear them in public clearly because I uh, I just feel like I'm able to judge people easier if they're just walking around in flip flops or sandals or whatever. Um, but at home, I I don't really wear shoes, and that's my secret shame. So you're uh, you're also uh, a graphic artist. You contribute to a music magazine called Razor. Razor cake. Razor cake. Uh, yeah. So I um I uh mostly like I I write humor stuff and then I also uh like do cartoons and and other things. Yeah. So, um. Well, where would be a good place to uh? Did I cut you off? No. Okay. We'll look forward to it because I will be in the future. <laughs> Is this one for me too? Yeah, that's for you. Okay. She gave me a couple of uh, uh things that she um. That she's written. Uh, oh, this one is uh, text. Yeah, that's like a, a book. Book book called Fine Fine Music yeah. Stories by Cassie Snyder. Where would be a good place to to start? Um. Uh. Well. Well, I I can tell you this. I after listening to the podcast, I was like, I should do something about my life, and I uh, decided to make an appointment with a therapist for the first time and it took a while to get an appointment and I was just sort of picking it out of my insurance directory so I got there I was late I was like sweating and stressed out but was like I just gotta get through this and um the therapist was kind of like not really looking at me, just sort of like looking through me. And oh, that's uh, a terrible sign. It was terrible. And I had like a horrible feeling about it. And but I was just like, I'm just going to see how this goes. And if it's not good, then I'll just pick the next person in the directory. And that's fine. I made an effort. I'm like doing it. So um, she was like, uh, so uh where do you want to start with this? And I was like, well, I've never really done this before, so I guess I'll just give you some background. And 
uh, was like, I'm uh, the child of alcoholics and they're also gamblers and compulsive shoppers and my dad died when I was little and life was horrible and I've had chronic migraines my whole life and uh, explained a whole bunch of stuff and I don't talk to my family and um, and she wasn't really looking at me or making eye contact and then she stopped me and was like so when do you want to make the next appointment and I was like uh I don't know and um, I'd also I had mentioned like well I made this appointment because I listened to a podcast called the mental illness happy hour and Um, I've decided to make a step into, you know, going to therapy and I'm actually going to be on this podcast maybe. So I'm, uh, going to just like, you know, practice what I'm preaching. Mm -hmm. And, um, so at the end of the, the session, uh, after she like cut me off and then urged me to make another appointment she was walking me in the reception desk and she was like well casey um uh sounds like you'll have a lot to talk about on that reality show and so not only did she get my name wrong but she also thought i was going to be on a reality show and just Uh, had not been listening to anything that i said so that's a ladle of awfulsome yeah not even a teaspoon of awfulsome that's uh that is yeah fantastic so and seems sad. like seems like a good place to start, uh, you know. And I suppose I I, I want to laugh at it because it's too sad to think of all the people that that may be their only time trying therapy and it turns them off from it. Yeah, I uh, I if I didn't if I didn't decide that like I I kind of have to do this to move forward with my life then that would have just been it i just would have gotten in the car gone home watched like three hours of law and order and then went to sleep um so uh yeah but um thank you for that experience so (laughs) (laughs) i will take credit yeah i will take credit for that um you know it's like baseball or anything else there's great people in it with great character and there's people in it that are miserable irresponsible children in adults bodies well how did um how did you start going to therapy i asked for a recommendation i there was somebody i knew this was when i was in my early 20s and i was so angry and uh, I, i just felt like something was wrong with me and um and so i asked this woman who was a friend of mine you know, um, you you go to therapy. Who who would you recommend? She said, "I don't think my therapist taking on anybody new, but um, let me ask her if she can recommend somebody." And she was great. The, uh, in hindsight, the first person I went to, I don't think really delved deep enough into uh, the mom stuff, so that kind of lay dormant for another twenty years mm-hmm. with me. But she did recognize that that it was unhealthy mm-hmm. and that I needed to, to to set boundaries and that it was abusive. But I don't, uh, I think it, there was still some stuff that was left un, um, unearthed. I don't think I was ready to leave therapy yet. Well, clearly, because I'm back in therapy now and have been for a couple of years. But she was good and she was, um, her demeanor um, helped me cry. It helped me feel felt and seen 
And um, I felt that compassion, and I always say that. I think that's one of the most important things to feel in a talk therapist is obviously they have to be intelligent about the subject matter and all that stuff, but if there's no feeling of empathy there, um, find somebody else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely find somebody else, my opinion, in my opinion. So, wow, it sounds like your childhood was crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I didn't realize how bad it was until I became friends with normal people. (laughs) Um, And then I realized like, oh, wow, there was really, that was really horrible. Um, So, uh, um, and where did you, you, now you live in New York City. Yeah, I live in, uh, uh, in Queens and uh, I grew up on Long Island and I've moved around a lot. Like I, uh, um, have lived in a bunch of different cities, but, um, yeah, I grew up on Long Island and um my I have uh my my dad died when I was 5 um of what? He had uh like a heart condition that he didn't know about and um we were like buddies and did everything together and I was with him when he found out that something was wrong and um and then he just went into the hospital and uh and then like two months later had a heart attack and died and uh he was thirty two wow. so um my mom was thirty five and uh it was I was five and my sister was three and she just like didn't know how to deal and just kind of like you know your sister. Um, no, my, my mom. Um, so, uh, um, she, uh, like stopped working and then, um, uh, about a year later, um, we had, we lived in like a very poor area and next door to our house, um, were these awful neighbors that my dad was always fighting with because they're always like doing drugs in their yard and, uh, like I'd be playing in our yard and smell like smoke and stuff and just didn't know what was going on over there. And their lawn was really high and there were like, you know, wild dogs running around uh, that lived there. And this dude appeared that was like living in a van in their driveway. And um, uh, my mom started going out with the guy that lived in the van. Why and not? then... The guy in the van started living at our house and became my stepdad, and he had kind of recently gotten out of jail, and... Um, These all sound like solid choices to me, Cassie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so he um, had been in jail for, uh, like, um, have you ever seen the... Leif Garrett behind the music. I have. Kind of a situation like that where he was driving drunk and paralyzed his friend. Oh, and Can't imagine uh, how difficult that must be. Uh, yeah. And then he, I don't know how long he was in jail for, like, and we've never discussed it. And then he got out and was living in a national park in California in a tent. And then still, got your, a, still your stepdad at that point. Uh, well, he, uh, he had not yet been my stepdad. Oh, and, okay. um, he, uh, 
then got up the money to move back to New York and was like living in a van and then moved into our house and became our dad. Um, so and what was he like as a stepdad? Um, he, well, he was fun and then it became, it was like not fun. Was he um, an alcoholic? Yes. I was uh, going to say, cause that's the, that's the trajectory of alcoholism. They say that, you know, that there's three stages. There's fun, fun with problems. And problems. Yeah, it was uh, definitely like did not take long for it to just be problems. But my mom was already like committed and also dependent on whatever income that he had. And so it was just like a terrible clusterfuck of like with small children involved. Um, so um, uh, we uh, my parents my mom also specifically has like kind of a gambling problem and with, you said she's also an alcoholic um she's not really an alcoholic she uh just has like a gambling problem and a shopping problem same, and is like same thing yeah as, as alcoholism. it is yeah um and uh like her um dad was an alcoholic so it's just like a super mm -hmm. alanonic it like sad it's like i don't know go, going to hang out with my parents for any amount of time is just like sitting in somebody else's wet diaper that's been around for like <laughs> generations it's just like very depressing and and she's still with the the stepdad yes yeah they're still together and, and they're both still drinking or she's um, still actively gambling and he's still drinking uh yeah so um like a lot of our money growing up is just like allocated to like lotto or buying stuff on the home shopping network or qvc and um my sister and i didn't really like uh i don't know we, we didn't really have like a we didn't know what normal was and so uh i don't know we didn't have like winter clothes or school supplies but there was lots of like cubic zirconia jewelry coming to the house and like um uh electronics and um so it was it was just a really like skewed um did your mom know that she had a problem no and she still like she still has like a major problem and just will not she can't see that her cannot see it are, at all and up. yeah so i started going to a support group uh, about four years ago and um for codependence or, for codependence yeah. and um uh i realized that it didn't really matter how well i got um it didn't didn't really change anything and the way my parents are and like relate to each other and other people there's just so much like isolation and weirdness and like um uh, constant drama that like um I forgot where I was going with this uh that no matter how well I got through working a program mm -hmm. it didn't really matter it was more like oh so you think you're better than us because you're not oh, screaming or like yeah. um uh yeah, so um uh, people whose loved ones get better are oftentimes really threatened by that person because they feel like they're leaving 
that sick little, you know. Nest of poop. The, <laughs> the nest that you have going where everybody knows what their roles are, and all of a sudden you're upsetting the balance of that, and it, it can be really terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it was really, like, volatile for me because I started going to a support group when I was, like, 28, and... um I'm the only person that's ever made an attempt at getting well or leaving where I grew up. So it's, um, it turned into like a, so you think you're better than us kind of thing. And, and even with like smaller things like eating better food or like, um, you know, going to the doctor when I was sick. (laughs) So you think you're better than us. Um, Oh, you're too good for iceberg lettuce, buying that kale? Like, um, oh, that sounds so toxic. So, yeah, like super toxic and just no support there. When you, when you said that it didn't matter if I got better, um, do you mean in terms of your relationship with them because you had been under the impression that if you went to the support group and learned tools that your relationship with them would improve? Yeah, I was okay. I was hoping for that. And But your life did get better in terms of you dealing with th- things and how you felt about yourself outside of your family. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like I uh I I had first heard about uh different support groups. Um when I was 15, I was like super lonely and would just listen to the radio and I my favorite program was like a call-in psychology show and I snuck the phone into my room and called one night and was just like, my stepfather's an alcoholic, and I don't know what to do. My parents drunk drive with me everywhere. And um, and um, the host was like, you should go to, you should try Alateen and, like, figure out a way to get there and um, and then leave as soon as you can. And um, so I had first heard about it, but I was 15, and there was no way of me getting anywhere. And um, I also didn't really have friends that I was comfortable enough to like ask to you know God, you must have been so lonely it was awful um so uh I um then fast forward like you know 12 years um I was at a party and one of my friends mentioned going to a support group and I was like what what is that like and she was like well I never realized that everyone that I dated was either an alcoholic or an addict. And it just struck me like, um, like I stuck my finger in a socket because, and all I could say was like, I just thought that I had bad luck all this time. I just had no idea that it was like a conscious decision or choices that I had been making to like surround myself with the most fucked up people and there's something um, familiar about it oh yeah yeah and oddly comforting yeah and it definitely like you know i i my people picking got better as i got older and got sick of hanging out with like whoever the most fucked up person in the room was but um uh that's when I, I got into a program and um, started going, and I just could not believe that there were other people in the universe that had, you know, gone through similar things to is, what I is, did. Is there anything more cathartic and a hope giving than that feeling when you look around and you realize, I, I am so not alone? There's not. And it's even in like the, the minutiae of being in a support group. Like, I, I remember one day this woman talking about 
cleaning her daughter's refrigerator. And I was like, how many refrigerators have I cleaned in my life? And um, uh, just like out of like sick, I'll take care of that like need for no reason. And um, that this uh, is love. Yeah, yeah. Like, I am just going to love the shit out of you. Like, no um, idea that the, the need to control can, oh, yeah. can yeah. be camouflaged as this is me being helpful. This is me loving. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that, if you would. How, how do you know when you catch yourself that it's you trying to c- control instead of it being a loving gesture? What's the difference and how do you know? Um... I'm sure it's on a case by case basis, but is there is there are there examples where you have caught your codependence and in a moment and you know, taken a deep breath and gone, Ah, oh, this isn't this isn't I don't need to do this. Um Well this is this is maybe like a, a year before I got into a program. I was dating this dude that was uh like definitely an alcoholic and um he had been like he fell into the train tracks not once but twice in new york (laughs) the second time he was dragged by the subway and um and i was dating him and his house was filthy and i he had gone to work and I was like, I'm just going to mop this floor. And I was like looking for a bucket. And then like the bucket was filthy and I was cleaning the bucket and then like soaping it up. And then I just had a moment of like, what the hell am I doing? I am like, this is not my job. This is not I've made this my job. And uh, I just um, like I wasn't yet there as far as like trying to like you know, find like recovery. Um, but I knew something was up. It was a moment, and, moment of clarity. Oh yeah, for sure. And just, um, you know, finished what I was doing, dump the soap down the drain and was like, I got to go home and do something else with my time. And, uh, so that, that was, that was, that stands out for me. Um, but I, uh, at this point I'm like, I feel like I'm definitely more equipped to like take a deep breath and, just be like, you know, this is me, that is you, and, like, there's, like, a boundary here, and I don't have to, like, you know, I don't have to wipe anyone else's butt (laughs) for my entire life, like, uh, so, um... That you don't have to rescue anybody, you don't have to save anybody. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to teach people how to live. I think that's one of the maybe one of the biggest crazy making things and if you think about it there's really a a a kind of an arrogance to it that that we think our, our job is to tutor people on how to live you know almost as if they're children and we're the adult yeah yeah there's a safety in it because then we don't have to look at ourselves yeah i th- i think for me like a lot of um a lot of my, I was able to file away a lot of my craziness after I got a dog. Um, like I uh, am partners with a a ten year old pug named Pug, and um, he's uh, we've been together for six years. And I 
I didn't think about it like consciously, but like my relationships became my human relationships became a lot more normal once I had like a pug to take care of and like someone like a living thing to worry about in like a healthy way Mm -hmm. and um, not like uh, like a 40 year old like adult male (laughs) sleeping in a record store because he can't get home Uh, which there were a bunch of those so like uh, um, whether or not that's like the healthiest thing uh, it's worked for me Uh, so um, yeah what what are some things you'd like to to talk about or snapshots from your your life that you'd like to share with us or you know arcs that you've that you could look back on and see how you've evolved as a person or devolved in with certain things um uh well i mean a lot of my like childhood and teenage years were just like so thick with depression because like home was terrible like unbearable but school was also unbearable like i was picked on and like bullied pretty severely and um uh like in the seventh grade um like i i I have contacts in right now but i wear a pretty thick prescription glasses and i have since i was 12 so in the seventh grade i was getting like picked on by one boy like relentlessly and like another boy was like threatening to kick my ass for no reason and my glasses had gotten stolen um in school so i couldn't see and my parents wouldn't buy me new glasses for Jesus. another year so I, I couldn't see anything and um i had to move to the front of all of my classrooms which angered some kid that was like you're in my seat and i was like i can't see the board so i like i have to sit here Man, if that's okay nobody looking out for you no one uh no one and i like i had a lot of really good teachers that picked up on it um like my fifth grade teacher mrs samuels my sixth grade teacher mr stolte like they knew something was up and they also knew that i wasn't like um like a dumb smelly dirty kid that i was like uh like had some worth and were like really kind to me and that just made a huge difference in like in life um but junior high was like hell and uh so like couldn't see all these kids threatening to like kick my ass for just because i was like dorky and um and quiet and um so i started having like uh terrible panic attacks and i've i've had migraines since i was like six which i didn't realize until a couple years ago that coincided with like when um, my dad died and we got my stepdad and like, uh, my whole family life sort of like rode off the rails. Um, so I, I've had like, uh, like migraines and that kind of chronic pain forever. And, um, so I also haven't been able to sleep for as long. So I would just like stay up worrying until like, three or four in the morning and then have school at like six or seven is insomnia still a difficult thing for you yeah which uh like 
uh, as an adult, it's been um, easier because I've just had night jobs, and that's why I work karaoke and do things at night. And uh, I think from having insomnia for this long, my brain's kind of rewired where... Like, I'm just kind of useless during the day. and um, But you're not sleeping, necessarily? Um, I I do sleep now. Um, I used to not need sleep at all. Like, I, uh, um, my early 20s, I was just, like, so angry and, like, tense that I just, I, I didn't really, I slept, like, maybe, like, three hours a night. Did you feel and, tired? Um, yes, but I, there was just, uh... I mean, there was just like an onion of bad feelings, so who knows what was what. Um, like, it's hard because you have nothing to compare it to, necessarily. Yeah. yeah uh, and Sometimes you don't know you're tired until you sleep, and you wake up and you're like, oh my god, I was so fucking tired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but I mean, for the longest time, there was never like... I, I would just have to absolutely exhaust myself to like unconsciousness in order to, to sleep. Um, so How, What's the average hours of sleep you get now um now probably around like like six um which is a lot uh for you yeah it's a lot uh so um uh, i still don't i don't think i sleep right and i don't think i uh i mean i don't know i've considered doing a sleep study because like you should i've heard some people that have said that it's like life-changing for them because then you find out if you're like getting oxygen and like uh so do you dare treat yourself to oxygen though yeah or is that, isn't that a bother. Bit, isn't that a little extravagant yeah you know what you're you're right um yeah i, I mean I, if you think you're worth oxygen go ahead but well let me ask you this do you have like trouble with breathing or remembering to breathe or like has that ever been an issue for you my wife says that sometimes in the middle of the night i'll suddenly suck in a lot of air exit as if you know i had not been breathing yeah and i'll make kind of weird noises uh, she tends to notice it's it's more after i've gained a little bit of weight that mm-hmm. she thinks it's fat in my throat which might be <laughs> Might be entirely possible. That's, <laughs> that's not how she phrased it. She would never say it like that. But that's basically what you're saying is, you know, the the snore, you, you snore more when you've when you've put on weight. Yeah. Um, which I don't I don't doubt. Um, I for people that haven't seen your photo or looked at the website, I'm just like, I, th- I feel like everyone should draw what they imagine you to look like after that description of having fat in your throat and then send it to you. Well, there was this woman one time who was describing a guy, a heavyset guy who, for I don't know why he was in radio because he had the worst voice for radio. And she said he always sounds like he has pancakes stuck in his throat. <laughs> That's... That's what I always picture when I picture myself when I'm uh, on the heavier side and I'm I'm having the, you know, the breathing issues. But uh, anyway, getting back to uh, talking about your insomnia, unless there was something else that you you had a question about. Uh, no. What, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, so insomnia and uh, seventh grade. So I I was having what I now know is like panic attacks, just like all night long. I was like. 
awake until about five in the morning and then I would wake up at five forty to go to school Jesus. and take the bus. So I was like just freaking out and um I uh um finally like got up the courage to talk to my mom about it and was you know crying and was like I'm not getting any sleep and everyone's picking on me at school and I can't see anything and um she said let me order you a snow globe well she's almost uh, you're you're on the trail so she was like uh get in the car and so I got in the car and was like maybe like this is like the answer to a problem and she drove me to the mall to Sam Goody and bought me a sound of the ocean CD and so I instead of like an actual solution I then had a soundtrack to my like crying every night for hours and hours which was the Aww. sound of the ocean which I like I didn't think about until uh like I don't usually go to the beach or anything but um one my one of my friends was like hey let's get in the car and go out to the beach and I was like okay and we got there and I was like oh god the waves why is this freaking me out and I realized like oh this is just reminding me of like oh, um wow. my like terrible like panic and anxiety so and, and you know you can't that was so well intentioned of it, your mom to to do that. That's that was really sweet of of her to do it. But you know how was how was she to know that that wouldn't work? Because for a lot of people that would, but she she didn't know that your anxiety was coming from a, a that you, it was anxiety driven and yeah, not something yeah something else. Um yeah, and like I I don't really blame her because like I don't uh. I mean, how would she know? And, um, but that, that, like, that stands out as, like, a real, um, moment. And, oh, that's so, um, my heart goes out to people that, that have chronic insomnia. I, I can't, I, I've had spells of insomnia where it took, like, three, four hours to fall asleep. And, uh, it's just, it's agonizing. And, you know, and especially because you think, Oh, I'm about to fall asleep. You can feel it, and it's just like, and then it gets pulled away. Yeah. And then you're wide awake, and your legs are fucking moving, and you're, ugh. Yeah. Um, I, like, it's hard to figure out, like, which, like, you know, what contributes to what, but, like, uh, I'm, I'm sure not sleeping did not help having migraines at all, and, um, like, living with that, and it's, like, uh, do you get them at all or migraines? Yeah, or very rarely. Or... Very rarely. I, got, I actually yeah. got one two nights ago, and uh, I was really tired. And I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna." It was the only. I can't even remember the last time I went to bed that early, which was one in the morning for me. Normally, it's five in the morning, and I was like, "This is great." Um, and I went to bed and I fell asleep, and I woke up in the morning and my headache was gone. So it was. I guess that was a long way of saying not really. Yeah. I don't. Must be nice, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah. But if you want me to start pulling out things that I deal with that you don't, <laughs> you, I will win this sick <laughs> poker hand. <laughs> All right. Actually, um, maybe not. I mean, some of the shit you've been through is, sounds really fucking awful. Um, yeah, like, uh, migraines are, like, it's weird because it's when you're neurotic and terrified of not like getting enough things done um 
to just be taken out of commission by your own body and to not really be able to sleep because you're in so much pain and then to like um, not be able to do anything either because you're in a lot of pain is just like crippling. And uh, I didn't really get like a um, start managing that. And I didn't realize it was something that could be managed at all until I was like 24 and dating someone that was like, this is insane. You can go to a doctor. And I just never really... Had, cons- you, had you tried... Go ahead, finish your, your sentence. Uh, your well, I, I never really like considered that an option because no one in my family goes to doctors at all. And like... Uh, um, actually, which I think that that's one of the things that I um, sent you an email about because I was telling you about a seminal moment from high school that involved woodworking. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, do you want to share that? Moment? Yeah, I could. Okay. Um, so uh, I took a lot of um, classes for boys. It was like very sexed when I went to high school and um the girls took home ec and the boys took woodworking and machine shop yeah totally and like the the girls gym class was like gymnastics and the boys was like basketball or like weightlifting so I was just sick of taking the girl classes so I took the boys gym class for a bunch of years and um like I got hit in the head with a basketball and got a concussion my mom wouldn't take me to the doctor for that until the nurse like called her and guilted her and um in the 12th grade I took uh woodworking and we had to do one major project for the first semester so I asked my mom what she wanted me to make her and she wanted a side table to match the dining room set so because you're only working for like 42 minute class increments and it's most of that hard is hard to get a project done in a semester. Yeah, really hard to get it done. So I like copied the like leg design of the the dining room table and like had to make all the plans for it and then I was I was making it and um and I was working on the wood lathe and it's spinning around and I'm wearing my gigantic thick nerd glasses and I'm also wearing goggles over that and then I just feel like and um, I felt something go into my eye and a wood chip had gone from the table leg straight into my eye and through your glasses, through my glasses, through the goggles. And I was like, and um, I like stopped the machine and went to the teacher and he was like, Oh my God. And um, took me to the nurse and, I called up my mom was like, I just got a wood chip in my eye. I need you to take me to the doctor. And she was like, I'm not taking you to the doctor for that. And like... Without even seeing it. Yeah. And like hung up the phone and then the nurse called her and then she brought me to a doctor and um, my um, cornea had been scratched. So I was pretty lucky that I wasn't blind. Um, so it was like... having a scratched cornea. Totally the like worst. fire in your eye. Yeah. So um, the doctor put a like a big giant eye patch on it by just... Always nice going to high school Very with attractive. Patch. Yeah. It was like a, like a fistful of cotton balls and then like an X of flesh-colored tape. So it was very <laughs> like Quasimodo... Um, and a kick sign. Kick me sign on uh, your back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um so uh then i went back to woodworking and worked on the table and um uh, i was 
planning to have this done for Christmas. And then it was about two weeks before Christmas when I came home and my mom had bought a table. And I just like felt that feeling that you is uh, for me, it's so specific to like talking to my parents or dealing with someone very unreasonable where it's just like, why would you do this? And when that, like, why would you do that? But to them, like their answer is very simple and it's because it was on sale and I'm not going to wait for you to finish a table for me. And so I had this thing that I almost went blind for that just ended up like sitting in the basement, um, oh. getting covered in like soot. Um, oh. like, uh, so yeah, so oh. somewhat awful, some, I guess. What that is awful, some. <laughs> what, what do you, if, if there are like emotions that you could, I've heard, I've heard that people do this in therapy sometimes. If they don't know how to express what it is, sometimes a, a therapist will just have a board with like 30 different emotions on it and just have them point to any emotions that they remember feeling. What would what would be the emotions that you would point to recalling that moment when you were? Um, I guess frustration, but it's more it's more like it's more of like a full body feeling of frustration. Like, um, there were a couple of years, like in my early twenties where every time I talked to my mother, I would actually have a nosebleed. And like, it was like, it was nuts that uh, like, it was just like such a like physical frustration for me to talk to like people that are, you know, genetically related to you and supposed to, at least try to understand you or like meet you halfway with like the simplest of things and then just like like you know not getting any of my needs met not being able to like like remotely understand where they were coming from with with anything it was just very like everything was like coming from like a place of like sickness and um so I'm just like a, you know, frustration, anger. I was like so angry for so long and I um, didn't, I didn't even know. Like I, uh, I just, I, one time I was working at a bookstore and I was watching the surveillance tape to watch for uh, people that were stealing and I saw myself on it and I had a mohawk and I had also like shaved lines into the side of my head and um and I was like so stiff and I didn't recognize myself I just thought it was a dude and I was like that dude's really hot but he's pretty angry looking and then I was like oh my god that's me my posture's terrible I look so mean and like uh, and so that was like a definitely like a moment where I was like, I need to make a change because <laughs> what the hell is happening here? Um, so, uh, yeah, but it took so long to, to realize that like Go, going back to was there more to that thought or sentence? No. Going back to that moment when your mom, you know, had that table. It feels to me like there's more than just anger and frustration. Like that, what what else do you think was 
was in there um because that seems like the the part that's readily visible and accessible but in the like in the sessions that I've been in therapy because I have a really hard time describing what I'm feeling or what I was feeling and when I've been able to go beneath the anger and the whatever the, there are always feelings underneath it that I never really knew I was experiencing that because I think consciously I didn't want to allow myself to feel those feelings because I associated them with vulnerability, i.e., in my mind, weakness. So what... Just take a, a moment. Just take a moment and just close your eyes and think about being that girl in, was it 12th grade? Yeah. And just think about what was she feeling and and her body. And if you can describe that too, what, you know, like maybe where the anger, where it started, where it spread to, I hope this isn't cheesy, but I just found myself really wanting to know like what you were, what you were experiencing in the, in like the most detail possible. Um, uh, well, uh, or is that it? No. Have you ever like, like run out of gas somewhere or had your car break down and like no one's available to like help you and just thinking like, I'm fucked. What am I going to do? Like I, my entire like existence of like living with my parents just felt like that like every interaction just alone, like alone and abandoned yeah i am alone and like i am just on my own and like i just have me to figure this out because there's no one coming to my rescue um uh one thing that i have not really thought about until now like um when uh when my dad died um my sister and i were getting social security money for him and my mom was also getting social security money and then my mom married my stepdad and then wasn't getting social security i didn't know that we were getting any of this because it just to me looked like we were poor and there were there was just a lot of lotto and um uh how much were they spending on lotto a week a lot i mean i i can't really be sure i just remember a lot and um uh like um like more than a dozen tickets a week oh t like tons like uh every day like i know i know for a fact that every day they were spending at least like 20 bucks which like on a like limited income is a lot of money that's yeah. like you've you need like a part-time job to support your like lotto yeah. thing so um it was it was just like it was a lot and um uh and then they also at some point in high school started going to like casinos and stuff and um so that was like another thing uh on top of this like chronic shopping thing and then also 
um, like alcohol and lawyer fees for more DWIs and stuff like that. So Which your mom wasn't getting, but your stepdad My stepdad was, was getting. Yeah. So um, in the 12th grade at the same time as this table thing happening, um, I turned 18 and I came home on my 18th birthday and there was a check on the table and a note that said, sign this. And I was like, what is this? And my mom came home from work and I was like, what's this check? And she was like, oh, that's your social security, sign it. And I was like, this is a lot of money. And I was like, where's this been going? And she was like, it's going to you guys. And I was like, not not really. Like, where's this been going? And there was like no money saved for me to go to college. There was like no security. And then coming home every day was also like, um, you know, we can't afford this. We can't afford that. And just like in weird, uh, inappropriate sharing of like, uh, like financial, like, information and like you know we're screwed we're going to be living in a cardboard box or like we can't afford to pay this thing and just as like an anxious kid like i internalized a lot of that as opposed to saying to a child i know you want that but that's not something that we can afford right now oh yeah saying like oh we fucked up you know yeah we fucked up we're gonna have to move and like you guys should start thinking about like what toys you want to bring with you like this is like in elementary school and stuff um backing up to the social security thing so you should have been getting that social security money that should have been put away for you Th- that check in when some were, capacity yeah and that that check when you were 18 was that just a, uh, another installment of that that she could no longer take for herself because you were now 18 yeah so i had to sign it to her for six more months while i was like in high school Why? but 18 because in her mind that was you paying your way living there yeah she was like you could sign it or you can get out and i was just like i I was just so shocked that my, like, own parents wouldn't, like, think about me at all or, like, my future or, like, uh, and that, like, I had been, like, both my sister and I had been made to, like, shoulder so much of this, like, financial worry when, like, this was proof that we actually had, like, some security, but it was just being, like, pissed away. So, um, I signed the check to my mom, and I had to keep signing a check to my mom for six months, and my mom didn't talk to me in that time. So, it was, uh, like, at least, like, four months of my mom giving me the silent treatment. And Why? What had you done beca- wrong? Nothing. So she was just, like, mad at me for even questioning that she had just blown all this money on nothing. She is um, oblivious. Yeah. Uh, she is completely lost in her disease. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, um, like I... Uh, I, you know, I know it's a disease and I know it's just like years and generations of like, just like, this is normal. This is normal. This is, this is how we live. And, um, but I just couldn't believe it. And, uh, so, um, like there was just a, such a pervasive loneliness it was like a just like a cellular loneliness um happening great great way to describe it yeah cellular loneliness yeah 
Um, wow. Uh, so, yeah, that was that. Was that. So that I was 18 um, when that happened. That makes me so sad. That makes me so sad. It's like I just want to get in a time machine and go just hug that girl and go, you do not deserve this. This is... This is not who you are. This is. Yeah. And like it really fucked me up because I just thought that that's I guess this is what I deserve and carried that for like, you know, 10 years, basically, and uh, just was in relationships that I I this is what I deserve. This is a, I deserve this shitty job. Like, I guess I deserve to get passed up for that promotion. I guess I, you know, just a series of like, I guess this is fine. Like shrugging my shoulders at like, uh, like every major life decision. Yeah, this is, and this is my lot in life. Yeah. Um, you so, went to shit heel boot camp. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> What would the drill sergeant's name be? <laughs> but yours would be fuckface. Yeah. I know that. Um, yep. Because are. I said so. That would be the, <laughs> the sergeant's. Ugh. Oh, Cassie, that breaks my heart. That breaks my fucking heart. Do you need a moment? Do you need to? <laughs> I feel like I feel horrible bringing up um, like anything that was like awful like that in my life like um and i didn't i didn't really think about this until like i was gearing up for meeting you like um the stuff that i write is like humor stories about like growing up and having shitty jobs and like this happened and it was pretty trashy and uh but isn't that funny and like, I, I wrote this book that's just, like, humor stories, and I, when I first wrote all the stories, it was, like, there was a lot more of the element of, like, sadness and, like, alcoholism in my family, and then when it was coming up for the book to come out, I was like, like, I don't want to embarrass anyone because we're on good terms right now, so I took out so much of the stuff that would like um make anyone feel bad because i didn't want to like anyone to you know take a step back and mm -hmm. like uh i just wanted to like move forward with things but um none of that's really in there but i guess you could kind of see elements of it and um it's weird for me like i uh I stopped talking to my mom a year ago, and I stopped talking to my sister two years ago. Um, she is, uh, she's had like a whole slew of problems, and there's like just a lot of like... Your sister or your mom? My sister. And um, there's like a lot of like untreated mental illness and like constant blow-ups and drama, and I was like... I don't really need this. So it's weird for me to like do readings in places and then have people be like, 
how's your mom? And um, <laughs> like, how's your sister doing? Like, and uh, I, um, j- like, t- just telling the truth about it just seems weird. And like, I'm forcing some sadness on people that just wanted to have like a yeah. happy interaction. Like, She's I, doing great. I, but I, for I, me, it's like, um, well, I don't really know where she lives anymore. And uh, <laughs> like, um, well, my mom didn't even call me on my birthday. And uh, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I have the feeling the the longer you're healing the easier it will be to not take on that shame because that that that's not your those aren't your i know i'm not telling you anything you don't know but i just want to say for the listeners to remind them that's not your burden to carry yeah it's uh you're sticking to your boundaries you have boundaries and you're sticking to them sometimes that's the most compassionate thing we can do for for people who are sick because a lot of times they won't change until people that used to um, be in their lives are no longer in their lives. And if enough people do that, then maybe they'll sit up and say, wow, maybe I need to change. Yeah. I, um, I, I worry a lot that not talking to them is that I'm going to like regret that because like anyone could die at any day. And yeah, but uh, like I, I know that for me, like my life was so much more chaotic and just being sucked into drama, like, um, uh, like uh, all the time, like every phone conversation was just, excruciating and um like i just can't really do that to myself anymore and uh like it's really it's weird and it sucks and it's the greatest guilt guilty vacation you'll ever take oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. that's how i can describe the last two and a half years of my life have been the greatest uh guilt tinged vacation i've ever taken but i can tell you the guilt gets less and less the more you experience the freedom and the the building of the esteem that used to be chipped away or i should say i allowed to be to to be um chipped away because i didn't i didn't know how to interact and not feel diminished i didn't i tried i tried for 20 years and i just couldn't and uh I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything differently because I wasn't mean and it sounds like you weren't mean like you didn't ah you're both fucking cunts you're out of my life it sounds like you just stepped away Yeah I did and um did like did you have a moment where you were like this this has got to be it for me or like what was your it moment? was mostly a process but the the epiphany i think that i really had um was when i confronted the truth when i could finally see the truth that i was sexually abused by her um i 
that wasn't why I wrote her off. I I thought okay I just need a, I need a break because I can't be around, I can't be in the same room with her right now because it's gonna uh, there's no way I can smile and I, it's just gonna be awkward, um, and when I was having that time away from her I was just kind of replaying the last couple of years in my in my brain and the thing that I kept coming to over and over and over again in my brain was a moment we had where she was badgering me about something and then in an instant wanted to read some literature from her support group together, some spiritual readings, like on a dime, like she just changed, like it was a switch had flipped. And I couldn't do that. And I wasn't feeling it. And I didn't want to. So I said, you know, Mom, I I know you want to be closer, but I don't feel safe around you and she just looked right through me no follow-up question no oh my god i'm so sorry what 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 am i doing that is making you feel unsafe let's talk about this nothing and that's the moment i always go back to when i start to feel guilty as i see this is a person who does not see me as a person this is a person who sees me as something that they get something from and that began to explain why she would become more energized around me and I would begin to feel exposed and and exhausted so it was kind of a process but that is the moment even though even though I didn't break it off at that moment that was the one that I came back to because I can forgive her for what she did I understand that she's a sick person, but if I'm going to have a sick person in my life, they have to be trying to get better. Yeah. And she and she isn't. She, I think she, in her mind she is because she goes to her support groups, but she never does the work in there. You know, there's a lot of work to be yeah. done. A lot of self-reflection, a lot of writing, a lot of getting honest, a lot humility. of amends. <laughs> humility. And she's never made um, any amends. And she's been in that support group for 30 years and never. And I think to myself, if I really loved my child... And I had hurt them, and I said I loved them, I would prove it to them by trying to see the extent of how I had hurt them, write about it, talk with somebody else about it, find the best way to apologize, and then go apologize. And she hasn't done any of that, and that's that's why I don't I don't have so that's a long, long winded way of saying that it was a process, but I think it's important for me for other people out there that are having difficulty breaking contact with somebody who's toxic to to understand it, it very rarely comes in an in an aha moment and the thing that's so important to be mindful of during that entire process is what you're feeling what emotions are coming up in you, whether or not you feel safe, whether or not you're getting anything um, nurturing from this relationship, or whether it's just a, how much of my energy can I bear to lose to this person today? Well, that's all I was getting yeah. was, oh, I suppose I can I can give five to ten minutes of this, and then I'll have my depression for a couple of days, and and my exhaustion, and my sadness, and then I'll take her phone call three weeks later. No, I'm fucking done with that, because that's all 
I got from this person. And I, and I hope that anybody who's listening um, can find the strength uh, to advocate for yourself and say, I deserve more. I deserve more. But when we've been raised on crumbs like you were, we're like, why would I go to a support group? I'm a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't I don't deserve I'm not worthy of more. This is just my my life. Um well, like it felt so routine for so long to just anytime I spoke to nearly anyone I was related to to feel like I had just done like Olympic power lifting and like gotten an anal prolapse while doing it for like, you know, just the simplest like two minute phone call, like afterwards just being like, Oh my God, I'm exhausted. And like, um, it's just like, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not okay. And there's, there's something wrong and it's not you. Um, you, and, uh, and you did your part by looking, by going to that support group and working on your part in it and saying, how can I, how can I bring the healthiest me to this relationship? Let's see if that can work. And you did. And it didn't work. Yeah. So that that's all you can do, you know? You're yeah. showing up at the game with your tennis racket and they're, you know, showing up with a bazooka. It's like, I'm sorry, we yep. can't play tennis. Yeah. I would love to play tennis. You think you're playing tennis. But this is not tennis. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to pick a more elite sport for that analogy. Cricket, maybe? <laughs> um. <laughs> What's that? Baccarat. Yeah, that's We're trying nice. to play Baccarat. <laughs> <laughs> but the model's hovering around me, and the gentleman with a monocle across the table <laughs> does not say that I'm a billionaire. Um. They're not recognizing my inner yacht. <laughs> Um, wasn't that the band you were in? Inner Yacht? Yeah, Inner Yacht. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. I fronted it for a while, but I got tired of the captain hat. Yeah. Um, I felt it was very emasculating. Yeah. And the Docksiders. Well, at least your solo career is working out. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, what else are we going to talk about, Paul? What else? What do you want to talk about? Um. You feel like kindred spirit, Cassie. Uh, let's see. You're supposed to say thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> That meant a lot to me. Please dare put you. the gun How down. How dare you? Um, you selfish. Well, okay, Paul, I wanted to, as a listener, I wanted to ask you about your dogs and about your relationship with animals. Like, how... Um, how did dogs come into your life and how did you go from... from... Uh, well, if you're like me, an emotionally crippled mess to someone that's like capable of, uh, you know, being a, a caretaker for that's a, a great, creature that depends on you. That's a great question. And um, under the advice of my lawyer, I'm not able to talk about that. No. I, uh, <laughs> Shit. Um, when we were... When I was 10 years old, my brother was 11, um, they got us a puppy from uh, uh, the pound. And I just immediately fell in love with it. Her name was Misty. And she was... Uh, <laughs> named after playing Misty for I, No, I don't remember why we named her that. I think we was just kind of a by committee, and that was the name that nobody had a problem with. So it became Misty. 
but she was hands down had to have been the ugliest dog in the pound she had a tail that looked like a wet sausage it hung between her legs she was you know she looked gun shy um but in many ways she i think all of us in the family felt like that's us in dog form she was abandoned her family was abandoned and she had been left in a bathroom for three days and when they when they found her but she sprang to life like within a week and was just i don't know if i got a constant source of joy from any maybe laughing with my friends in grade school um but there was nothing that brought our family together like she did she was like the hub of our family she was the only thing that affection was lavished on she was the only thing that nobody was working an angle um it was just i would come in at night even when i was in high school and college and i would just lay on the floor with her and just kiss her face and it so i've been a dog person ever since then the next dog that we we had that my now wife and i had we were boyfriend and girlfriend it was in 1989 and we were driving through michigan the upper peninsula or i'm sorry the, it was the lower uh, part of michigan near charlevoix and uh, there was a dog in the middle of the road that had been abandoned and basically became our dog and it was the we thought we couldn't have a dog because we lived in an apartment and we worked the road and we're like this will never work out we found a way to make it work out and she we had her for another 15 years and she was the fucking greatest dog and i just what was her name her name was charlie because we found her near charlevoix michigan so we called her charlie and she was uh the most low maintenance dog that you can imagine and in many ways it was because my my wife and i at that time you know we'd done a little bit of therapy but we didn't really understand how to be vulnerable how to talk about feelings so we just poured our love into that and it became that in many ways that has kind of been the hub of our relating to each other over the last 27 years and we're kind of at a point now where we're both kind of confronting the the fact that, that maybe we need to open up more to each other and not have all the kind of the affection merely be lavished on the dogs. I mean, we're affectionate to each other, but there's 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 room to grow there. Does that make sense? So the dogs yeah. have always been kind of a... I don't know how, how, how this, what the analogy would be for it, but kind of a piggy bank for the positive emotions, but in many ways it's kind of um, robbing us of emotional currency that we should be feeding each other but it's the easiest thing in the world to say i feel like loving and being loved i'm going to go to my dog instead of saying we need to talk about this thing that happened last week that really pissed me off and is in a really gray area and i know it's going to take 15 minutes to talk about this so i'm going to ignore it pretend it didn't happen let's kiss the dog (laughs) and i know right now there's a ton of people shaking their heads going oh my god (laughs) You just described my relationship. Just looking up from yes. kissing their dog. Getting on the computer right now and getting ready to send me an email. 
because um, when that did a therapist pointed that out to me at one time and I was like god you're right you're right and that doesn't mean that we're, we're you know there's a finite amount of love and we're going to take that love away from our dogs no not at all but it sounds stupid but we need to find a way to love each other the way we love our dogs unconditionally and openly and with vulnerability but our dogs never hurt us we hurt each other and and that's the problem that i have is being vulnerable with the people that are most important in my life the people that i have commitment and responsibility to do you struggle with that oh yeah definitely like i um i can feel I have to make a conscious effort to hang out with human beings because I would just so much rather hang out, sit on a couch and draw with like a pug next to me. And um, good cup of coffee. If I were to call up like one of my friends and be like, you know, hey, Smo or hey, Nithya, like come over and draw, that would require like multiple conversations like it would be a phone call conversation then like a conversation while they're sitting in the same room as me but with a pug he there's nothing like we're we're just he's getting it already we're just doing our thing and it's uh it's so much easier um like relationship wise like he's definitely like a relationship hub for me um and i we talk about him constantly and also he has a a voice and he will say things. And my boyfriend pointed out that, um, like when people are crazy ventriloquists, sometimes they'll just like use the dog to say things. Mm -hmm. And, um, some, I mean like use their, their puppet to say things. But for me, I'm just like, uh, you know, Pug is saying like, this is bullshit. Can we do something else? <laughs> and, um, and I've, kind of, I've been like, you know, I'm aware of that and I'm conscious of it and like, uh, trying to, you know, um, have better human communication and like, not just, uh, using my dog relationship as my, crutch and main source of like love and intimacy and yeah it's um, so easy to love and be intimate with 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 dogs because we yeah. know what we're gonna get it's fucking scary being intimate with people who might disappoint us who might hurt us who might make us feel rejected yeah um i'm also like i'm t- like he my my dog pug is 10 and um, like people when I, while I'm walking him will say like, "How old is he?" And I'll say like, "Oh, he's ten." And they'll say like, "How long do those dogs live?" And which I can't even think about that, and I get very ups- like depressed and upset when I do, and like I'll just be like, "Gotta go, keep walking." I'm just going to ignore that that ever happened, and I'm like, I'm I'm terrified of like how I will react to, um like not having him and uh i i mean i i that's something that i mean that's that's actually part of the reason why i wanted to 
start going to therapy was to prepare yourself prepare myself um, i used to think about it constantly and each uh dog that i have it's it's never easy when that time that time does come but it gets a little easier because you realize oh this isn't going to destroy me i will be sad for a period of time but um I'll think back on all the positive things we had. I'll think ab- about what a good life I was able to give them, how much better off they were than if they died in a pound or or whatever. And that's what I try to remember is is what a good life they were given. And cuz it's not hard to give a dog a good life. Yeah. It's doable. Yeah. It's hard to show up for the complex human needs of a human being. Yeah it's i'm not good at it yeah i could do this podcast and talk you know talk a lot of talk but when it comes down to it i'm not an easy person to live with yeah same here like i i totally hear that um uh yeah um yeah i get you <laughs> What a great question, though. I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked me that because I. I haven't talked about that in a in a long time, and I think a lot of people. Limit their love, to the animal in the family because it's just, easier, to have that be the only outlet. But. It's it's kind of a really primitive, one dimensional, love. Yeah. And human love is so much more complex than that. And to, yeah, I mean, oh, what a great question. I, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Hoarders. Um, I've seen in- bits and pieces of it. Okay. There, like, there are a couple of uh, episodes that deal with, like, animal hoarders. And I kind of, I, I get it. Like, um, because then it's like... You don't have to do anything else. Mm. You've just got your; those are your guys, the and they're all over the place. Yeah. But you, you know, this is that's your thing, you and don't, you don't have to choose being around human beings. You can't even choose to be around human yeah. beings because you have so many. It's it's not even a decision. You've got yeah twenty litters to you know yeah twenty cages to clean. We yeah. got um, our dog Herbert. We got him from uh, a woman who I would classify as a hoarder. She lived in. A, it was either an apartment or a small house with 26 dogs. Oh, whoa. Yeah. yeah that's All a rescues. lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she did not seem to be a big fan of people. Uh, did not seem to be a big... Um, just You just got that vibe. Not that she was that way towards us. She, you know, sussed us out, but she would reject somebody as an adopter, you know... Like you, we had to sign this thing that basically said, if you violate any of these things, you lawfully uh, forfeit that that dog. Oh man! But we we knew we'd be okay with it because we're we're pretty responsible yeah. owners. My wife is a lot more responsible than I am. Um, who's the main like walker? Like, and do um do your dogs have like a human that they gravitate toward? Yes. Or? Ivy gravitates towards me and Herbert gravitates towards towards her. Um, they actually don't like to go um, outside. That We have a, a decent-sized backyard that's completely fenced in and safe, and they just like being back there. Um, 
Charlie loved to go rollerblading with me. And I would put my rollerblades on and then I would, you know, I would skate to, to keep up with her. And, uh, oh, she loved it. I would start putting my rollerblades on and she would go by the door and she would just howl and howl and howl. And the first hundred yards that we would go, she was going as fast as she could. And we lived on a block in Chicago that was rectangular. So you would have at 15 miles an hour, I would have to make these blind turn 90 degree turns on rollerblades trying to 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 keep up with her. And it was it was pretty crazy. A couple of times I almost took people out or I, you know, went spilling into the grass. But it was like one of my favorite things to do with her because you could see just the pure joy she had in being able to run as fast as she could because a lot of dogs it's got to be frustrating getting walked because they want to run yeah you can't run in the in the city yeah um but yeah those are those are some of my favorite man- memories but the the uh, herbert and ivy don't you can open the front door you can put them on leashes and they're i take that back ivy used to go to the dog park and she loved that, but our vet told us that um, really crowded dog parks are not a great idea because it's kind of a petri dish for you know all these things that they can get. And yeah. So my wife was like, "I'd really prefer if you didn't bring her to the dog park anymore." And so I don't. And um, yeah, just pretty much the backyard. But they seem they seem content. Um. Yeah. Pug hates dog parks i mean he'll like he'll go because i'm going but uh he'll just walk around the like perimeter of the dog park not interacting with anyone and then eventually look up at me like are we gonna get out of here because seventh grade you oh yeah no exactly and uh like i wonder if um like i i don't know he uh the way i got him was um he was my aunt's for four years and then she just dumped him at my mom's house one day and I came home from a road trip and there was this pug in a cage and I was like, what's up with the dog? And my mom was like, oh, your aunt left him here. So then I was just like, he can't just be in a cage. So I like took him out and then he just became mine. And um, what, was, what was the moment when you knew? You wanted to keep him. Um, well, I I wanted a dog for a long time, but I was I was kind of afraid to get one, and I was afraid I was afraid that I would not be able to handle the commitment of an animal like that, yeah. and um, and then I was also like afraid of dogs because um, uh, I mean we'd had dogs growing up, and like um. One of my dogs was like my best friend, and then uh, she died, and then um, we got another dog, and that um, my parents are very horrible at training animals, and that's um, a shock. Yeah, you know. Uh, so my mom had two smaller dogs that she trained, and thought it was funny if they bit people, and um, so they were like very aggressive, and. Uh, and so one of the aggressive small dogs went for my bigger dog's food and then, um, the big dog bit it. Yeah. But it was like more like just like gutted him. And I was the only person home. I was like 15 and I had to make the call to like 
save the smaller dog's life or like um risk like being bitten by my own dog and so i got like bit up by my dog saving the smaller dog oh my god and my dog got put to sleep and it was like a mess just like a big traumatic mess so i was like and i'm sure your mom blamed you um well she didn't really want to take me to the uh doctor (laughs) um that might be shocking but um and um then she also like thought it was like funny to make jokes about it and um it was just like constant like weird trauma and needling so i was like I, i was afraid of dogs and i was afraid of like loving another dog and then it took like 10 years and then pug came, pug came along and pug came and, into your life yeah and it was like came, the right it, time and um pug came down a spiral staircase he did just beautifully lit from behind <laughs> just soft focus and glowing um and sadly a a small trail of turds but yeah pug didn't know that that wasn't sexy yeah that's uh it was more anal fluid uh, <laughs> we uh herbert makes that when we bring him to the vet and we call it butt gravy oh it's the worst yeah it's the worst um, uh we had this moment with charlie when we found her we got back to the hotel because we were both doing stand-up and so we were we had a gig that night in this hotel and we had like an hour to decompress and we had to sneak charlie in because they didn't allow dogs but we're like we're not you know, we don't know what else to do. So I hid her in my jacket. We get to the hotel room. I lay on the bed. I set Charlie down. She hops up on the bed, crawls up my chest, and tucks her head underneath my chin and starts to go to sleep. And I just looked at Carla and I went, we're done. We're done. We, this this dog is ours. There's Because at that point, we're like, we can't have a dog. We're going to have to find a place to bring her. But we, we were like, yes, there, there's no way we're not yeah we're not taking this dog oh my god but we we were reported her in case somebody had lost her given the chance to claim her and but after five days nobody did and she was ours in those five days every time the phone rang we were like oh god no don't answer please, it please don't be yeah somebody claiming her but nobody did oh man it was the best it was the best yeah she was awesome and she was so spoiled we had a water bed and we would come home. <laughs> I remember one time we, we had a heater, heated water bed and she's laying on the heated water bed and we'd come home from dinner and I laid on the bed with her and I was hand feeding her chunks of prime rib <laughs> on a heated wow. water bed and my Carla and I just looked at each other like, I wonder if this dog knows how good it, That's like it something has it. Richard Branson would do. <laughs> yeah. Like, um,. That's like she private was, jet yeah. level of yeah. <laughs> it was. I just love. I love stuff like that. Is there anything else uh, that that you'd like to to share before we hear some of your fears and loves? Um. Uh, no. No. Well, maybe. Let me. Well, you had said earlier about being, like, very angry when you were in your, like, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like how did that manifest itself? Were you just, like, well, the, tense and, like, or did you get into fights? It or? came, no, uh, the occasional fight when I was drinking, but those weren't 
really angry. Those were just kind of more beer muscles, exuberant, um, trying to be macho. Uh, it really came across, and I couldn't see it at the time, through um, a sense of humor that made other people the butt of my jokes. And because they were often witty and people would laugh, I didn't have to look at the fact that maybe I was hurting other people's feelings. Um, and occasionally there would be times where it was clear that I was a fucking angry person. I remember this improv teacher, he asked for a suggestion and we all yelled something out and I don't remember what I yelled out, but he kind of paused and he looked at me and he just said, you're so hostile. And it, took me I had no idea I thought I was funny and charming and I just thought I was edgy I couldn't see that there was a fucking rage under underneath it and the moment I think when I really realized that my rage was out of control was uh, I was yelling at pedestrians in my car because they were crossing across the light in front of me and my light was green and I couldn't go and I'm honking the horn and all of a sudden this guy like out of a time machine from the 50s with a fedora and a briefcase and the trench coat I look and his his face is like four inches from mine and he just looks at me with a combination of disbelief and pity and he says son get a hold of yourself and then he turned and walked away and that was one of the things that led me to go to therapy was that moment where I was like, I am not who I think I am. It was I, I truly believed like he was like whatever the version of an angel is. Yeah. Uh, he was like an angel in my life that was like, wake up. The Clarence to your George Bailey. I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. What? Uh, why do you, Why do you ask? Was there a moment when you were so angry that? Um, well, I, like, I would get into fights, like, all the time. Like, I, I was so... Verbal or physical? I was so, uh, physical. Like, I was so passive growing up until I was, like, um, like, 20. And I was dating this one dude that was, like, kind of an abusive jerk. And, um, and then after that, I just had this moment where I was like, I don't have to take anything anymore. And... Um, and then I would go to like punk shows and just get into like fist fights with people. And, um, I, uh, got into this one, like I, I got into a fight once where I had been like skating around at a show and then I took off my skates and I was holding them and then this drunk dude got in my face and like uh said something like really disgusting to me and I went to punch him but instead I was holding skates so I just heard like crack and it was like blood and teeth and like um and everyone around me was like oh my god and I was just like that guy deserved it and like that wasn't enough but then like maybe like two months later I got into another fight with um some dudes outside of a show and like I chased after them in the rain after they yelled something at me and um like uh like the next thing I like remember I was on top of this guy and like trying to rip his face off like I had my hand in his mouth and was like 
just hitting him in the head and trying to pull his face off. And my friend, who was the bouncer of the club, like, I just, uh, like, I had a short black, like, mohawk, and people would call me Rizzo a lot back then. (laughs) I just heard, Rizzo, you're killing him! And, like, it, like, clicked, like, oh, that's my name. And, like... Uh, he's talking to me and I've got blood all over my hands and like and that friend who was a bouncer like pulled me off of this dude and then like dragged me back to the club and was like I had a friend that used to be just like you and um and she got stabbed and um I don't want that to happen to you you got to think about what you're doing and I was just like whoa Someone I respect is like offering advice, and, 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 and what did you? And by the way, you're not a physically imposing. No, person. I'm not, and like, but I just had so much like rage. It was like just like a, um, I don't know, snapping like a rubber yeah, band. I back just think and, it's important for for the listener who can't see you physically to to understand that um, it, you're you do not look like somebody who is physically capable of doing those things. Yeah, I like um it was nuts. Uh and and I was nuts and I was crazy and I like had and I and I was also like attracting crazy people and I couldn't understand how all this stuff was happening to me and it just seemed like a series of crazy coincidences <laughs> that this shit just seems to find me and um and then like now I know that it was just like Lots of choices, and um, so, yeah, I uh, um, was, it took a long time to, and, like, a lot of, like, work and figuring out how to, like, calm down, and... What are some of the things you do to help yourself calm down? Um, like, writing. Uh, I also, uh, withdrawing for me, like, I used to draw when I was a little kid, but it wasn't really, like, no one was encouraging it, and, like, so I just, like, stopped drawing, and I started drawing when I was, like, 26, and was like, oh, I'm kind of good at this, and, like, not really good, but, like, I'm, like, I'm passable at this, and, um, so doing that really, like, just, like, finding another outlet for what was going on in my head, or to just, like, um, have something to do while, you know, while obsessively ruminating, ruminating. (laughs) um, like, really... To craft it into something that's socially acceptable. Yeah, exactly. So, um... I often, I I don't know who said it, uh, but... They said comedy is socially acceptable hostility. Oh yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. And um, I think you could say that about any art form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, just finding other outlets, and then uh, like finding other areas of my life where I could get encouragement and like positive feedback, and like just figuring out a. Uh, you know, that there was, like, a light at the end of the tunnel of, like, anger and sadness. Um, so, um, th- that's what's helped. Uh, you know, I, an- another thing that I think is really important is getting clarity on what you do and don't have control over, which I would imagine the support group you went to, which oh, is yeah. about codependence, 
is that's the that's the hub of it. I want to use the word hub one more time in this uh, in this podcast. I think that's the ninth time I've used it. Uh, but that's the isn't that the core of the support group you go to is sussing out what do I have control over and what don't I? Yeah, I like I I did not know what boundaries were. And the uh, first time I went to a meeting, um, one of my friends took me, and uh, after the meeting. This woman came up to me and was like, can I give you a hug? And I was like, I guess. And I didn't really want to be touched at all. And then, and she was like a crazy looking woman that had been like obsessively knitting the entire time. And, um, and then after the meeting, my friend was like, why'd you let her hug you? And I was like, I don't know. Cause she probably just needed to hug someone and she was like girl we need to get you some boundaries and because i just had no idea and i I was just letting the world hug me for 20 something years and like i guess that's okay um do you still not like hugging or is it just depends on who it is i'm i mean it depends on who it is like uh um uh hosting karaoke and like the job that i do is weird because like um, and also like, it might not happen as much if you're a dude, but if you're like a lady and I have like a lot of, um, like arm tattoos, people will grab me a lot. So I'm like used to just being like, Gah! uh, like, please don't touch me. Um, so I don't, I don't really mind hugs anymore. I've, I've kind of gotten over that, but, uh, like hugs from the right people are fine. Yeah. But yeah. Um, was there anything else? Um, about that, the, the anger thing? I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. And thanks for sharing those, the things that help you cope, because a lot of times we forget to um, talk about that stuff, and it, it people will email and say, how did they get to that place? What did they, how are they, show us that step. Well, I, like, I, I've gotten a lot of, um, I get a lot of, like, letters from, like, teenagers that have read my stuff, and, um... Like at just like asking me about like how do I get to do what you do or like how do I like you know my life sucks and like how do I survive being until I'm eighteen and um for me it was just finding like trying to remember what used to give me good feelings before it was sucked out of me by like my family or my like or school or my life circumstance so and for me those things were have always been like writing and drawing and um um I also I used to love gardening when I was a little kid and I had like a really crazy garden and um I've started doing that in the last couple of years and my apartment is full of plants and awesome. uh so if I would say to anyone that's listening, like, if you are having a hard time figuring out how to manage your feelings, just, like, close your eyes and think about what used to give you good feelings and try it out. Or, like, just even if you're not great at it, like, just just keep at it or find a new thing or, like, finally work up the nerve to, like, you know, take that improv class or like go to karate or, you know, do the thing that you've been putting off that just keeps dipping to the bottom of the list. Um, 
So, uh, yeah. Good suggestion. Um, I also want to uh, mention that you do a show called The Worst. Yeah. Um, and, and it's people telling... It's kind of like awful some moments, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, uh, that's. Uh, I was so psyched when I heard that on this podcast because that's like what my whole life has been. Um, uh, like I, I, I do this uh, reading series. It used to be monthly, but now it's like special occasions, uh, and it's like writers, comedians, and musicians and other weirdos telling funny stories about the most horrible things that have happened to them so i love it Um, yeah we'll have to put a link uh on our website too are some of these uh available as video or audio uh yeah there there are some so yeah i'll send you some of those good yeah hit me with some fears okay let's do that um I am afraid when something smells bad in a public place that it is actually me. <laughs> I have that one. Um, I have that one. I'm afraid that our house smells terrible and I don't know it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I worry about that. I just uh, got a canary and I worry that maybe I'm going to smell like a bird person or that I smell like a dog person mm-hmm. and um, just have like a musty funk and don't even yeah. know. Um all right. Uh, I'm afraid that all those times I've gone on WebMD and it's told me I have MS or cancer and I have brushed it off because I know I'm a paranoid hypochondriac, that I do in fact have a disease so rare it will be named after me. <laughs> and they'll misspell your name. Oh, yeah. yeah. They'll spell S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. Yep. yep. Completely wrong. Go ahead. Um, if I think of one, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Okay. Uh, I'm afraid that I will be looking down at my phone to see how many likes I've gotten on a dog photo on Instagram while walking pug, and he will lick a puddle of antifreeze or walk in the path of an 18-wheeler and die. Um, I'm afraid I will die, and my next book will be published posthumously, and everyone will love it, and I will be the David Foster Wallace of 32-year-old depressed white women. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, uh, that- I, I always think of, um, oh, God damn it. What is his name? Confederacy of Dunces. Uh, uh, John Kennedy O'Toole. Yeah. Oh, my God. That book is fucking genius. And that guy never got to see it published. Yep. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm really afraid of, like, penniless and alone being, like, the oh, yeah. last, like, words on my eventual Wikipedia oh, yeah. page. I go like, one further. I go to me not even having teeth and struggling to eat corn on the cob because it's the <laughs> only thing I can afford. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, t- like living in a tin structure under a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you get a bridge. I'm oh. out there in the open. <laughs> Boy, you think a lot of yourself, don't you? Like just getting chapped from the wind. Under your fancy bridge. <laughs> um, yep. Okay, hit me, uh, hit me with another one. All right. Uh, I'm afraid that everyone knows I have a mustache and talks about it when I'm not around, or worse yet, I have a nickname like Grizzly Adams or Walt Whitwoman, <laughs> and I have no idea. I see no mustache on you. Well, that Electro- means I'm, electrolysis. I'm, uh, that means I'm doing a great job at keeping it under wraps. <laughs> okay, that's probably um. rude to ask a woman <laughs> how she keeps her stash on the on the, <laughs> on the uh, down low. Lots of secrets there. Right. Um, 
I'm afraid of going on vacation to another country and a civil war breaks out and I become the blindfolded American begging for their life on the news. Oh. Oh. Yep. That is dark. Yeah. That is dark. Let's uh, go to some love. Okay. Unless you unless you got an upbeat fear to go out uh, on the fears with. Okay. Uh or a funny one. I'm afraid of not being able to groom myself when I'm old and being the grandma with the wispy beard that nobody wants to kiss. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, Just that one little curly chin hair coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that I've already become the dude with the gross hair poking out of his ear. Oh, yeah. Uh, my boyfriend just had like a, a rough moment. He was on tour in England and went to get his hair cut and they did like a weird thing where they like used a flaming wand to zap his mm -hmm. ear hair and he didn't know that there was any there. So it was <laughs> like a, just a sad... Is he a musician? Uh, no, he's a, a comedian. Um, oh, okay. Uh, he does the Found Footage Festival. Um, oh, that's a great thing. Yeah, he's that guy. Um, is, is he the? He's the guy that started it. Yeah. So there's uh, there's two. There's um, Joe and Nick, and he's Nick. He's the Nick. One the What's orange. his last name? Uh, Pruer. Um, okay. Yeah. Seems like a nice guy. He dropped he dropped uh, Cassie off here to uh, to record, and he's currently sipping uh, coffee at a coffee joint around the corner. Yep. Um, uh, loves? Loves. Okay. Um, I love when Pug's lip gets tucked into his teeth and he unintentionally smiles like a pervert at a bus stop. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I love nailing a high note at karaoke without passing out. That's <laughs> a great sense of accomplishment yeah. from that. Um, I love when I see a Chinese restaurant with a really stupid name. <laughs> Uh, which actually one of like the ongoing jokes at in our small family is that Pug's job is to name Chinese restaurants. <laughs> so he'll get a call from the commissioner and he'll just say like, Lucky Dragon, and then hang up the phone. Um, I love assigning back lives, backstories to uh, to our dogs. What, and, what are their like secret lives? Oh, Jesus. You, you got nine days. For me. <laughs> I mean, it's so extensive. It's not even funny. Uh, one is that whenever we leave, uh, Ivy is outraged and immediately calls Animal Services, which she has on speed dial. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it goes. Uh, I can't even. Uh, I, she also takes credit for anything that's good. If you said that you enjoyed something, uh, she will always let you know that she invented it. Um, and. Yeah, it just, it goes on and on. Do they have yeah. voices? No, Charlie, I used to do a voice for Charlie that really kind of encapsulated her. But um, I, no, no voices have ever struck me for Herbert or Ivy, so mm -hmm. I don't do voices for them. But that doesn't keep us from creating these imaginary lives that they yeah. that they lead when we're not around. Um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing around our house. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. Um... One of my loves is with the new canary, um, who is a, he's a Gloucester canary, which is like a weird breed that looks like they're wearing a toupee. Um, so uh, um, his is, I love when my canary has seed husks on his beak and it looks like he's a little yellow Tom Selleck. Um, uh, I love finding a dollar in a coat pocket. Yes. Um, uh, I love going gray. Um, 
I've you going been, gray? Oh yeah, like I don't see any. Uh it's in there. If you get if you get yeah. close, you'll see a lot. If I move it around, I honestly but. don't see any. I, look at I got a little patch of gray coming in on my forearm. Can you see it? Oh. Just right there. I just noticed that at dinner the other yeah. night, and I was like, ah, oh, I guess so. The inevitable. Oh. Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> Come on in. We knew we were expecting you. <laughs> We were expecting you. I don't think I'm going to handle uh, my pubic hair getting gray very uh, with the same kind of. I don't know why I feel differently about about that. Maybe because I'm afraid that it's going to uh, make me feel um, uh, unattractive. What if it comes in spotty, like a like a Dalmatian, <laughs> like spots of spots of gray, yeah, like dense polka dots of yeah. gray, like an Irish setter or I actually something. Might be okay with that. <laughs> Because then I'd be like, well, this is unique. <laughs> this is, you know, at least I got, I got some pizzazz. Like a like a dare to be different poster yeah. of Dalmatians. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, what else do we have here? Um, I love remembering all the words to a song I haven't heard since high school. Uh, I love cooking for my boyfriend and getting compliments. I love, I want to throw in a music one. I love on the uh, eponymous Dire Straits album, some of the slower songs where Mark Knopfler's guitar playing is so subtle that you, it feels like you're hearing his guitar breathe. He just, he strokes the str- the strings so slowly and with, with such subtlety that you, it's almost like you can hear the skin on his finger because he doesn't use a pick he uses his fingers and it's almost like you can you can hear that it's almost like uh like a violin bow you know how there there's a uh a resonance that you get from a uh a violin bow that that it's almost like a i don't know how to describe which songs in particular uh wild west end uh down to the water line um uh there, there, um, there's a couple of, of other other ones. A six blade knife, six blade knife is a great one for that. That you can really. He just makes the guitar cry. He like turns it into a human being. You know, John Coltrane was good at that too. With he would make these noises with his saxophone that you never heard another. It, it sounded like a human being in pain, like a like a like a cry he can make his saxophone cry and i love when somebody can do that in a way that has subtlety to it yeah um that yeah that's definitely like a favorite thing for me like when someone's musicians like an extension of themselves yes. like yeah. yeah um and yeah. especially the guys that and girls that can shred if they choose to but they choose their moments yeah They're not always playing all out there sometimes it, it but you know that they can let loose at any minute if they choose to yeah and they have that restraint i mean those are my favorite artists are the ones that that show restraint sometimes yeah um what do you listen to lately what have i been listening to lately um pandora a couple of different and the one that's really been I've been enjoying as I do it when I play a video game is 60s French pop and it's so because you've never heard any of these songs before but they're so um, catchy 
it, it's like you're getting in a time machine and re-experiencing being someplace in the 60s because you've never heard these it feels like another it feels fresh and but they're really some of them are really corny but yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of enjoying that and i always enjoy i've been listening to a lot of uh, classical guitar i enjoy that i enjoy that too how about you um well for for me i've mostly been just really excited to listen to podcasts because um music has almost been ruined for me with karaoke because it's just like hearing the same journey song or that's gotta be hard it's it's hard Um, the righteous brothers yeah yeah and yeah it's uh it's difficult um but uh i um i've actually been listening to a lot of hip-hop because i Mm. was working at um a hip-hop bar for a little bit and doing like a hip-hop karaoke night and then i was like this is kind of exciting because i've never really tried to to listen to that much hip-hop before and found a lot of new things and it just like opened up a new door where i was like that's cool oh it's nice when you find something that it feels like an unexplored cave to you and you're like oh let's root around in this yeah what what do we have here yeah Um, Let's do two more loves. My my battery is at twelve percent, and, okay. and I don't I don't want uh, my computer to shut down. Well, you're in luck. I only have two more. Look um, at that. So, uh, I love thinking about something I'd really like to have, and then finding it at a thrift store or estate sale the next day. Oh, that's a great one. Um, and I love wrapping presents for other people. Oh my God, what a bizarre one to end on. I hate wrapping presents. I hate it, I dread it, and that means I'm a terrible, selfish person. Disgusting. Cassie Snyder, thank you so much for uh, coming and sharing your life with us. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And we'll put a link up uh, to your stuff on the website. But for those that aren't going to go to the website, if they want to check you out, see what you're up to, or contact you, what's a way that they can do that if you're comfortable um they could follow me on twitter uh that's where i put a lot of mean karaoke jokes okay. um uh and that's at cassie j snyder or they could just friend me on facebook okay. and, and i'll C- feel good about myself c-a-s-s-i-e-j-s-n-e-i-d-e-r correct yep, yep. okay thanks cassie thanks paul really enjoyed talking to uh to her and uh, she said that the best way, uh, I just uh, emailed her for an update. She's doing great and um, loves the therapist that she's with and feels like she's making great progress. We recorded that about, uh, I think about a year ago, maybe maybe even a year and a half ago. No, about a year ago. Um, I'll fax you all individually when I when I get the exact time right. I'll, uh, you know, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send out triplicates of mimeograph. That's Yes, Paul, please lengthen a show that's already at the two-hour mark and you haven't even started reading surveys. Tonight's a big one. It's, it is a hefty show. If this were a construction project, I would insist that all of you wear hard hats. I'm going to uh, forego the uh, usual info about uh, supporting the show and all that bullshit. You know what to do. Let's get to some some surveys. This is 
uh, hold on, sip of tea. Gotta have a sip of tea. Those of you with misophonia, step away from the earbuds. Safe to come back. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence, and uh, she calls herself, I'd rather not state my nickname because this is very specific. Um, she writes, uh, after 20 years in therapy, mentioning to a new therapist uh, that day when my dad, whom I regularly begged for a pet as I was lonely and socially awkward, told me that my mom had gone out to get me bunnies. Telling the therapist how, when my mother finally came home, not with a box full of bunnies, but with a bag that contained a fur coat made of rabbit skin, my father told me the, that he had never promised the bunnies would be alive, and that he did say we would, quote, keep them in the closet. So what exactly was the problem? He was tickled pink by my shock and disappointment. Expecting my therapist to be amused by this, as my family had always been, and watching her shake her head in disbelief in a hint of anger. Realizing so many years later just how morbid and sadistic doing that to a young, hopeful child was. And then she puts in parentheses, too strong a word, sadistic, probably. Eh, I, I would disagree. I don't think that's too strong. Uh, piecing that together with many, many other humorous moments that have always been just family jokes. And for the first time, feeling empathy rather than all-consuming hate for that isolated, desperate child I was reconsidering my parents' claim that I was emotional for no good reason and therefore left them no choice but to use the belt on me, though to be fair, usually they they did just hit. Checking my childhood diaries and staring in utter shock at the amount of abusive shit I had chronicled without even realizing it wasn't normal and then forgot completely. And yet I have the nagging suspicion that anyone else reading this will shrug and think, ugh, it's amazing what people these days convince themselves was abusive. No, that's uh, that's fucking mentally and emotionally abusive. And if you disagree with that, go fuck yourself. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Magenta. She is in her 20s, straight, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was a preteen, my sister's boyfriend and the father of her child would masturbate in front of me. I would spend the night uh, because my home life with my brother sucked. That's in the next section. And my sister would be at work. The kid would, kids would be in bed and he would just jerk himself off in front of me. I can still visualize him ejaculating. I remember not telling anyone or even talking to him about uh, any of it as if I was just ignoring him while he was doing it. She's been physically abused, and she's been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, how do I put this nice? My brother was an asshole during our childhood. I was constantly teased and pushed around, punched in the arm, uh, punched in the arm, bruised, pushed into bookshelves, and called fat and stupid uh, as a daily occurrence. As an adult, the emotional and mental abuse continues. I'm walking on eggshells around my husband and constantly thinking of a new life. I feel like I'm a shitty mother, an alcoholic, and so stupid that I can't be trusted to do anything. He's told me things before. It's not just in my mind or an overlap of my childhood. Some days are really bad, and others he's great and loving, and it drives me fucking crazy. It's as if he's nice on purpose to make me feel mentally ill. I believe it's called gaslighting. I have daily dreams that I'm with my childhood slash teenage crush, and we live blissfully happy with a bunch of kids on a farm where life is simple and sex is mind-blowing. 
He's still a family friend, so I hang on to the notion that it could happen. I should have watched I should have watched that porn with him when he wanted to years ago. I blew that chance because I was fat and I didn't believe at the time he could be remotely attracted to me. Any positive experiences with your abusers? It's strange. Fifteen years later, it's, quote, water under the bridge for my siblings, as if it was normal sibling picking on. It wasn't to me. It fucked with my self-esteem and self-worth. We're friendly now, but it still messes with me. The bit about the sexual abuse, and then in parentheses, I don't even, I don't even, if it is abuse, apparently there's a word missing, is under the rug at this point. He's dead now, and I've been through so much that I don't even care. Darkest thoughts. I always hope slash wish slash think about my husband dying. I hear the garage door open and I think, fuck, he's alive. I've even thought of ways to kill him to make it look like an accident or illness. I will never actually kill him, so don't be alarmed. I wasn't alarmed. Uh, Darkest secrets. Uh, Here's the fact that really sucks and in my opinion brings everything full fucking circle. I went to city to start my new life away from my family. I had no money, no job, not even a phone. I should have never gone, and any right-minded parent wouldn't have let their 18-year-old go. So, I started having sex for money. Blow guys on business trips in their hotel room, etc. Anyway, that's how I met my husband. Yeppers, I was his hooker. I guess he liked me so much, I became his girlfriend and eventually got pregnant, so stupid, and married him. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Gangbang cream pie. I would love to be in a room with a dozen guys of different appearances fucking me and coming in me one by one. What, if anything, do you wish for? My husband to die and for me and my kids to be with my love. Have you shared these things with others? Oh, God, no. Only you, Paul, and your readers slash listeners. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel relieved that someone will finally know. Sad that at age 27, my life thus far sucks. So much for the young years. Hopeful that this could all change. Thank you for sharing that. This is an awful moment filled out by... Um, actually, I think this is more of a happy moment. To me, it, it is. I guess it's kind of awful, but... This is filled out by a woman who calls herself lacking the usual, and she writes... I've had some sort of eating disorder pretty much since I was a teenager. I had a phase when I purged pretty much everything I ate, and then I had another phase where I fasted on just sparkling water for three weeks before developing the most painful gallbladder attack from gallstones I've ever experienced. I'm also addicted to sugar, the same way people are addicted to cigarettes. So one afternoon during my second month of being unemployed, my mom called me to ask if I could get her a salad. She was working really intensely, had back-to-back clients, and had no time to get herself lunch. I told her I'd be happy to oblige. Went to the store, got the veggies I could find, and took to making the most amazing, nutritious salad I could make. Carrots, veggies, avocado pieces, nuts, feta cheese, the whole shebang. At the end of it, the salad looked mouth-wateringly good far better than anything I could have bought her prepared. When I dropped it off, my mom was really impressed and asked if I'd made myself the same. I responded, no, I was fine. But in my head, a thought popped up. I don't deserve a salad that good. I'm unemployed. It hit me like a brick. 
For two months, I've been eating the crappiest, least nutritious food possible. Not because I couldn't afford better food, but because I felt like as long as I wasn't contributing to the house financially, I didn't deserve quality food. And I hadn't realized it. A fucking salad. I didn't feel worthy of a fucking salad. I don't know where that thinking came from, but believe me when I say, I came home and made myself that damn salad, and I fucking enjoyed it. That is a happy moment. That's not an awfulsome moment. I love that. Sip of tea. By the way, my pinky is out when I do that. And Herbert is saluting me. Oh, Herbert. Herbert has just been going to the vet. He is He is now, I think, on six different medications. He's given me a run for, run for the money. But uh, unlike me, he's not crazy. That's not true. He's fucking crazy. He's my doppelganger. We both got big asses. We can't get enough sleep. We take too many pills. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Melissa. Um, she is straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um... Never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Four years ago, I lost my ex to suicide, and on occasion, I will look online for images of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Then I try to picture what he must have looked like when he was found, though his family assures me he looked just like he was sleeping. Darkest secrets. I had an abortion 10 years ago. I am currently having a long-distance affair with a married co-worker. I masturbate to lesbian porn. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with another woman is something I frequently fantasize about, but I don't have the guts to initiate it in real life. It feels good to admit this to someone for the first time. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to ask my married lover to leave his wife, but I don't think he ever would. I fear he doesn't love me as much as I love him, and I don't want him to know how much I love him. What if anything do you wish for? Contentedness. Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't want people to see me in a negative light. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good to get all this out in one sitting. I have a hard time opening up to others, even therapists. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Hug as much as you can. It helps. I have to second that notion. And I would also like to say that uh, if your therapist hasn't said this yet, um, you deserve better than somebody uh, who is married to somebody else that um and i have a a feeling that there's something safe about somebody who is married that you're having an affair with um because there can only be so much vulnerability and um that's just my hunch And I think also because in your in your survey, you're saying that it's hard for you to be vulnerable, that you're af- afraid of people seeing you in a negative light. This is uh, a snapshot from Struggle in a Sentence filled up by a woman who calls herself Pickety Pick Yourself While You Wreck Yourself. Uh, snapshot from her life. I get home from work and see I got a package. I grab it excitedly and head inside. I cut the tape and pull back the boring cardboard flaps. 
to reveal a lovely arrangement of flowers handmade with care using bright, colorful tissue paper and beautiful textures. A note catches my eye. Attached with shiny pink ribbon and written on gold cardstock, cardstock in a font that screams wedding, and I'm instantly filled with anxiety and dread. One of my best friends has asked me to be a bridesmaid in her wedding. Fuck. It's a summer wedding. Fuck. All the bridesmaids will surely have to wear the same sleeveless dress. Fuck. How the hell am I going to hide the purple scars covering my arms and legs all over my body? Fuck. How will I explain the scars I've spent the past seven years meticulously hiding? Fuck. Here's to hoping this panic attack ends up being the one that's actually a heart attack and kills me. Thank you for sharing that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself more worthless than you. I'm a fan already. Uh, my mom passed away in January of 2013. She was a huge Disney fan. By the way, can I tell you probably half, now nah, that might be an exaggeration, probably a third of the awfulsome moments um, and the... Uh, Vacation argument moments involve Disney. <laughs> anyway, my mom passed away in, in 2013. She was a huge Disney fan. So in December, uh, the year before she died, my family took her on a Disney cruise. She had been on all the other Disney ships and really wanted to go on this new one. Due to her brain tumor, she really didn't get to enjoy the magic that is Disney crap. But her one tradition was to always get a picture of herself with Mickey. So here I am standing in line with my mom in a wheelchair waiting for her to get this picture. As I stood in line behind her chair and can tell that we are both crying, we both know this will be her last picture with Mickey. I could just imagine all the other people in line are waiting around looking at us and trying to figure out if they were happy tears or sad tears. I tried to get out of being in the picture, but Mickey pulled me in. So I try and dry my eyes quickly and try to look as happy as I can. Mom buys the picture and gives it to me at the end of the cruise. What the hell am I supposed to do with a picture of two adults looking the most miserable anyone can look with fucking Mickey Mouse? A lot of fucks in our show today. Thank you for sharing that. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself the supposed problem. And he is straight. Ari writes predominantly straight. He's 35, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I willingly shared a bed with a frisky gay man, but he wanted to fuck and fondled my dick. I later told a friend. She said, you were molested, but I didn't feel molested. Being not 100% straight, I have a few times fantasized about what it would have been like had I been attracted to him and we'd had sex. He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, he writes, I'm in a terrible relationship with a woman in her early 30s with terrible daddy issues. She is very masochistic and submissive, but says that she has no abuse or rape in her past that she can identify as having informed her sexuality in this way. What she refuses to acknowledge is the way her parents really messed her up. The emotional abuse she suffered, uh, especially from her mother. Uh, it was only a month into the relationship that I wanted to end it. She has refused to let me go. 
What makes it so difficult is that the discussion she promises to have with me on the matter never arrives. It's been over a year and we are no closer to a solution, I feel. When I bring up a point that she's uncomfortable with, she gets sad and leaves the room. I've tried to leave her many times. It always results in a day of relentless calling and texting from her. I may have as many as 50 missed calls and as many texts in a day. One On day two, she will soften, start calling me daddy, and promise to be nice, and to finally have that discussion that we agree is so important to have, but it still never arrives. My psychologist says this is where my strong empathy is to my disadvantage, because I always go back. I have done this dozens of times. The twist on the whole matter, what makes it even harder to understand, is that even though my fear and anger with not being able to remove this venomous relationship from my life has caused me to beat her, call the cops on her for invading my home and refusing to leave, and spend a night in jail after they saw uh, that she was the one bleeding. She still panic, panically uh, tries to keep me close to her. Uh, we had had fistfights before, but this time she was sitting on the floor and I was trying to drag her out of my apartment. Every discussion we attempt ends in a fight. There is no hope for us, but she refuses to acknowledge that. I feel like she emotionally abuses me, and people I talk to share the same opinion. She routinely tells me I'm a violent person and that I will never be able to have a normal relationship again. Before that, she would say the same thing about my anger. Her part in my anger, she completely denies. I was happy for years before I met her. Um, you know, as I, as I read this, first of all, nobody can make you beat somebody. That's a choice that, that you make. You, you allow somebody to make you angry. You have the power to leave a relationship. And if you can't leave a relationship, then you should get help for um, love addiction or codependency or something. But um, you can't put your beating her on on her. And, and you can't put you're not being able to break up with her on her because you're you're not you're not taking you're not reaching out for the healthy power that is naturally yours and instead you're you're reaching for the unhealthy power of physical force and that's not to say that you know she's not doing a mind fuck on you um and toying with your emotions and making you feel guilty uh well, actually not making you feel guilty, but bringing up guilt in you that then overwhelms you. But um, it's a real slippery s- slope when um, when we blame people for making us feel a certain way. And I did it. I did it for years. Uh, and I finally had to say, you know, what's what's my part in things? And. 99% of the time w- was that I was staying in a friendship that was toxic and I was allowing myself to be uh, mistreated. So I hope you get that anger thing uh, under control and I hope that you can um, break up with her because she sounds very, very sick. She sounds like a total love addict. And um, anyway, that's my, that, that's my thoughts uh, on that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Divine. 
And she writes, one of my happy moments from childhood was being in the backseat of the car coming home at night. Mama and Daddy were in the front seat and the four of us were sprawled across the back seat. This was before the mania of car seats and seat belts. So, um, anyway, uh, I hate when people put in parentheses and it's really large and then it fucks up the flow of the sentence. So anyway, uh, the four of us were sprawled across the back seat, sleeping or falling asleep. Uh, I was leaning, and I love too that it's the mania of car seats and seat belts, because that was crazy. Yeah, putting on seat belts before we got into that whole craziness of trying to pre- prevent our necks from snapping uh, when somebody would uh, hit the brakes. Um, I have just completely fucked up this happy moment. Uh, So uh, the four of us were sprawled across the back seat, sleeping or falling asleep. I was leaning against the door, and the light from the street lights would pulse across us at steady, regular intervals. It was quiet, except for the hum of the car's engine. At those moments, I felt incredibly safe and centered. That is such a beautiful, happy moment. I, I love how you described the street lights pulsing across. Um, God, I... It just like took me back, just took me back to that feeling of being in a car at night, being kidnapped. Now what? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Emma. And uh, she's straight. She's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my father had bipolar disorder when I was a child. At times he was loving, playful, and caring. Then his rage would take over and he would chase us and try to hit us. He would punch holes in walls, throw furniture, and break our toys. There were days where he would hole up in his room. He never hit me, besides the random spanking, but the threat of violence left me constantly on eggshells. Myself and my two brothers took the mesh off our windows so we could escape easily through them. Let that sink in. They took the mesh off their windows so they could get out quicker. I can recall running out my window when my father was in a rage and climbing our neighbor's trees. I knew that he wouldn't chase us outside because, God forbid, the neighbors knew what was really going on. Perhaps the most damaging thing was how we were constantly told not to discuss anything that happened to us. The threat of being taken away from our parents or being deported if we did report any of this made it so difficult to bear. My father's worst act was threatening my brother with a gun. My memory of this event is very blurred, and we never spoke about it as a family since. He always had guns, and I was afraid he would kill one of us or himself. My mother is a wonderful woman, but no human being can stand all of this by themselves. As a result, I became an adult very young and took care of my brothers and mother. I had a lot of anger resentment that my mother never stood up to him. I was never allowed to have any problems because the family was always on the brink of destruction. This has led to a lot of problems, as you can imagine. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, my father is a very sensitive, intelligent, and sweet man. In my teenage years, he sought help and to this day takes medication and sees a psychiatrist. He's not a perfect man, but I still enjoy his company immensely. He never apologized for his actions. I haven't ever brought them up to him because I don't want to cause him any guilt. She puts in parentheses, he was raised Catholic. I also have the suspicion that he has repressed this memory or that mania caused a gap in his memory. 
Through therapy and becoming an adult, I recognized that he had an incredibly hard childhood and did his best with an untreated mental illness. His father was a drunk and his mother was the most anxious and critical person I've ever known. I have some anger still with my mom, but it's hard to hold these feelings towards who my parents are now. She is a worrier and very codependent. Through therapy, I realized I had a lot of my mother's problems. It has helped my relationship with my mother to stop trying to help her. My therapist told me to quit the job of taking care of my mother. Every phone call, I have to repeat to myself that she is a grown woman and can take care of herself. Talking to her can still send me into a worrying spiral where I literally have had neck spasms darkest thoughts. I have had suicidal thoughts at times. Flashes of shooting myself or taking pills. I then feel like I'm being a drama queen because I don't think I'd do it. I don't want to share these feelings because I'm worried about causing other people pain or worry. Darkest, darkest secrets. My older brother went through bipolar disorder too when he became a teenager. The family always painted him as a black sheep and I didn't stand up for him. He was violent and acted out, but he didn't deserve that. He was very angry, and once he held a steak knife to his wrist and asked me one reason why he shouldn't kill himself. I thought he just wanted to make me upset. Misery loves company. Like he always did, I told him he wouldn't do it and walked away. He never tried to commit suicide, but I feel like such a jerk for not being more sympathetic. I was 13, so maybe I should forgive myself. My therapist says that I was just placing healthy boundaries. I am not responsible for other people's actions. Despite this intellectual understanding, I still feel incredibly guilty. Thank you for sharing that, Emma. This is a happy moment. Sip of tea. Filled out. Uh, by a woman who calls herself Stranger from Europe. She writes, This will sound very lame, and I'm sorry in advance. This may not sound a lot, but for the last two days, since I found your podcast, I showered both days. I'm cringing while I'm writing how awful this sounds. But I've been so down lately that showering is a huge struggle. But I was so happy to do it. I actually needed to take a shower, which is a huge change when compared to the fact that I used to force myself to do it, and it took me a long time to go. Now I jumped in the shower, and it was so soothing. I don't remember the last time I felt this way after a shower. I don't know what happened. I still feel crappy, but damn, it was just a moment, but still great. I think that is awesome, and I was so touched by that because I know when we're super depressed, how monumental even the smallest things can be. And on top of that, it was self-care. It was you taking care of yourself. And I, I just love that. Just love it. This is filled out by, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Moonshine. And she is straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, I don't know where to begin. My earliest memory of sexual abuse from my biological father. I was three, so my memory is hazy at best, but I recall him closing all the curtains and showing me pornographic videos. A few years later, when I was four, my mom got into a new relationship and we moved into her boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend had a roommate. We'll call him Chuck, as he used to take me to Chuck E. Cheese after incidents, incidences of uh, sexual abuse. Uh, so I would continue to trust him and not tell my mom. Now I realize it was his way of psychologically manipulating me to reward me for my, quote, behavior. I guess in his mind, I was not a person, just a thing like Skinner's rat to be trained to respond to rewards. 
When I began to feel like I was doing something wrong and shameful, I began to duct tape my pants and underwear to my belly in hopes that it would protect me. Let that sink in. Sweet mother of God. Sweet mother of God. Eventually, my mom broke up with her boyfriend and we moved out. She never found out. Three years later, when I was seven years old, my mother entered into another relationship. Once again, we, re- lo- we relocated to live with this man. They bought a gas station together, and in order to keep an eye on me while running the business 24 hours a day, they built a makeshift home in the back storage room. All of us shared a bed. I don't remember how it began or if he made an advance. In my memory, it was myself who seduced him. I thought if this happened to me before and it's happening again, the only commonality is me, so it must have something to do with me. He would often come up behind my mom and rub her genitals in front of me, and they would make eye contact with me and giggle like they knew it was inappropriate, but it was funny to them. He would touch me while my mom was sleeping beside him. Sometimes at night, I would get woken up up to the bed shaking and moaning um, noises from my mom. One time I felt his knee on the bottom of my foot while they were having sex, and to this day I still feel like I was a part of the sexual experience, and he got off to the fact that I was probably awake. After they finished, he went to the bathroom, and my mom sat up and leaned over to me and tucked me in and touched my face, all while I was pretending to sleep. I eventually told her about the two men, and her reaction was to tell me what's in the past is in the past, and it's nothing to dwell on. I have to be strong and move on. Years later, when I was a teenager, my mom invited her new boyfriend to live with us. I would hear them have sex at night and have terrible flashbacks. I would cry and bang the wall, and she would come into my room and scold me because it would ruin the mood for them. It wasn't my intention, but a physical manifestation of the anger, disgust, and pain that I felt. I would go to school the next day running on two hours of sleep. Every night I would have anxiety that I would hear their voices, that at times I heard noises in my head that probably weren't even real. It became so disruptive to me that one day I told my mom that I think I need to see a psychologist about sexual abuse. In my moment of vulnerability and trust that she would take care of my emotional needs, she yelled, if you want to see a psychologist, don't call me mom anymore. What have I done that's so bad that you need to see a psychologist? Well, I can think of about 10 fucking things. Continuing, uh, we never talk about the abuse any, anymore because she does talk uh, anymore, but she does talk about all the men that have come in and out of our lives. She often has a look of desperation and regret in her eye when she tells me, I was just trying to find a father for you. Oh my God, what a fucking narcissist. Oh, I've been emotionally abused. My mother often told me that if she didn't have me, her life would have been so much better. I grew up thinking that all the bad things that happened in our lives, money problems, problems with her boyfriends, her depressive episodes of nonstop crying were all in fact my fault. When I would become, quote, too much to handle, which would mean interfering in her relationships with her boyfriends, she would send me off to her friend's house for weeks at a time. She claimed it was so that I could have company to play with. I hated being pushed away, but hated being at home at the same time. Darkest thoughts. I don't know if this falls into the category, but I began to masturbate when I was seven years old. I only knew how to do this because it was the way my abuser would touch me, and I knew that I liked the feeling, so I tried to replicate it. It's sickly ironic when I think about this, as I feel very empowered by being able to satisfy myself sexually without a man, yet it started at the hands of my abuser. 
darkest secrets. I fear the shame and damage I have caused to other girls my age. Because I was sexualized at such a young age, I often initiated inappropriate play with my friends. Eventually, they would feel that something was wrong and not want to do it anymore. I hope they do not carry guilt I hope they do not carry guilt and shame and feel that they were sexually manipulated. For this, I feel a bottomless pit of sour, sorrow. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Although I am straight, I often fantasize about women because to me, they cannot hurt me or exert their power over me. I would never feel comfortable sharing this as I'm afraid my girlfriends would think I think about them or they will fear that I am a lesbian. When, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I struggle to write this because I don't think my voice matters. I can't even fathom this in an online forum where I can, I can make believe anything I want. But I might want to say to my abusers, and maybe to my biological father, go fuck yourself. What, if anything, do you wish for? I sometimes wish that sex for pleasure didn't exist. While it can be very sacred and special, reading all the traumas and listening to other stories of addiction, so much unresolved emotional issues stem from sexual abuse. If sex weren't pleasurable and gratifying, maybe our abusers wouldn't want to use us to fulfill those needs. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared it with my mom. That was a bust. Shared only a little with one of my best friends. She reacted awkwardly and never brought it up again. Shared during my last session with the therapist who I trusted, but unfortunately that was the last session that would be covered by college. How do you feel after writing these things down? I can't tell if I'm relieved or more anxious than before. I've never verbalized the details in this 27 years of my life. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, no matter what happened, it's not your fault. Thank you for thank you for sharing that, and I hope that you can let go of that that guilt and that shame, and uh, and you can find your voice. It sounds like it sounds like you're starting to, and I really really want to encourage you to uh, get back into therapy. And if money is an issue. Google low-fee therapy in the name of your town or city. You can also try calling 211 and find out what local services are area, are available. Uh, you can also uh, go to the Rape and Incest National Network. doesn't matter how long ago a sexual trauma happened. Uh, you can often qualify for free counseling through um, one of their... Uh, one of their centers. Um, their website is rainn.org. Sending you some love. Sending the love to all the all the surveys that I read. I, I know I don't say on it every one, but um, every survey that that I read, um, um, I read because something about it um, moves me in some way, and. Um, I just don't want to sound like a broken record sometimes. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a teenager who calls herself Lullaby. And her snapshot is, she writes, I have a chronic pain condition, so it's not likely to get all better soon. And so many people don't much ab- know much about it and it causes negative stigma. It's mostly an invisible illness, so unless I'm in my wheelchair, people think I don't have the right to use the handicapped parking space even though I ache every time I move. I get chronic fatigue, so it's hard for me to walk long distances. So uh, I do use that spark. So if I do use that parking space, there, there's typos in here, I'm, I'm just bear with me. So 
I do use that parking space because I'd rather not pass out in the parking lot. I know I should just say fuck them if they want to be ignorant, but it really gets to me sometimes. I have bad days and those comments really hurt. Usually I can tell them about the condition and then they apologize or don't care, but I know I at least try to educate them. I try to keep that mindset, but God, I hate having to deal with this. And I also get weird judgments and looks when I use a cane, but I can't help that my body isn't the best. I collapse easily and have major issues with heart rate and blood circulation. It's just so frustrating to deal with people's shit on top of all my personal problems. I can't imagine how hard that must be. And sending you some love. This is from Anthony D. This is struggle in a sentence. And, oh, this one is fucking dark. But I, you know, I sometimes I worry that, that it's just, I just, I pile too much shit. But when something really, when I read one of the things, these things, and it just burns something into my memory, um, I don't know, I feel like I, like I, like I have a almost like a duty to to share it anyway this the snapshot from Anthony's life nine years old sitting on the couch while my father stroked my penis making me stroke his at the same time all while my mother is sitting in the chair in front of us deep in a drink drug stupor We're, we're going to finish on an up note. We're almost there. We've got some, we've, we've got two good, awful moments at the end. Uh, this is our last uh, shame and secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Boo Bear's Mama. She's gay. She's in her 50s. Uh, she writes, uh, I prefer the term lesbian. Um, she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, I remember being three or four, and my godfather always liked me to sit in his lap when he reclined in his lazy boy. He always acted weird, slow, sluggish. I later realized that when he was that was when he was drunk. I have no memory of him touching me, but the lazy boy lap memory always makes me uncomfortable. Later, I remember it about age six or seven, the neighbor boy and me getting behind the bushes and pulling our pants down, trying to get our thangs to touch. There was an older female cousin touching me and laying on top of me uh, to show me how boys did it to you, and still another male cousin putting his hand in my panties. By the time I was 13 or 14, I had become the abuser. For almost a year, I molested my younger male cousin. I always felt ashamed doing it, but any time I was around him and had the opportunity, I would mess with him. Touching turned to oral sex, then to showing him how to get on top and put it inside me. It stopped when my mother confronted me because my aunt told her I had left passion marks on his neck. Uh, she's been emotionally abused and physically abused. Uh, my parents were old school. Dad was former military and a Southern Baptist minister. Spare the rod, spoil the child was an often quoted scripture. Whippings with a belt were administered to your backside while laying on the bed on your stomach. I came away with welts and bruises on my legs and arms. Once my father hit me so hard with his belt, it cut me and my arm bled. 
Verbally, I was constantly told how fat I was, how they couldn't buy me regular clothes, only huskies. I was constantly on diets. My preschool teacher was instructed not to let me have dessert with my lunch, so the other kids would get in my face while eating their chocolate pudding, licking their lips and telling me how good it was. Watching a ballet dancer on TV, I was told I couldn't do that because there were no fat ballerinas. I have many more examples because it happened my whole life. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? Uh, I remembered it snowed once, very rare in the South, and me and Mama built a snowman, then got a bucket of clean snow, brought it in, and made snow cream. It was a really great day. Darkest thoughts. My partner was molested for many years by her older brother. Sometimes when we have sex, I fantasize seeing her brother fucking her. Darkest secrets. A former girlfriend bragged about she about how she had had sex with her younger brother for years. She said who was better to show him the right way to have sex with girls if it wasn't his sister who loved him. With her explanation and encouragement, I attempted to have sex with my younger brother. Um, he was smart, and as soon as he realized what was happening, he jumped out of bed and went in the bathroom. When I told her what happened, she told me she was disappointed in me. I never attempted it again. Sexual fantasies uh, most powerful to you. Uh, my partner having sex with her brother. It feels good to write it down. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for, uh, to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, to tell my dad that I spent my whole life trying to please him. Even as an adult, I always end up in relationships with partners that have the same astrological sign, temperament. Uh, one former, uh, a guy, was not only a preacher with the same birth month, but was dark-complected with the same impossible-to-please attitude like my dad. What, if anything, do you wish for? His dad would often say, a roll of money big enough to choke a horse. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, partly with my partner. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sleepy. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts and experiences? It gets better with time, meds, and therapy. And uh, <laughs> she writes, my favorite word I've heard you say is cunty. Oh, I love you guys. Uh, this is the first of two awfulsome moments. Um, I'm going to need a sip of tea for this. We're in the home stretch. Oh my God, we're at 162 minutes. It's nice being your own boss. This is filled up by a guy. I love this guy. He calls himself Cake Makes Things Better. He's 25. When I was in university, I lived with five friends in a shared house. I had a breakdown and took an overdose. Suddenly, I started to feel huge guilt. So packed a small bag, snuck out the house in my PJs, no shoes or socks, with a teddy bear. I was a 21-year-old guy, he puts in parentheses, and sat behind the garbage bin and called 911. I asked the lady on the phone to ask the ambulance people to not put on the sirens as not to alert my friends. I greeted the hospital staff and was hugely apologetic. I probably looked hilarious. This young adult in his PJs with his stuffed bear being all smiles and sorries. I let them pump my stomach and hook, hook me up to a heart monitor, then texted my friends to tell them I was okay in case they went into my room. There was a suicide note in there and some bloody tissues from minor cuts. 
They were crying and screaming and so angry and sad with me when they got to the hospital, but I kept telling them it was all fine, and I went home and baked them a cake. Years later, they have told me the creepiest thing was how insanely happy I was and how I thought a cake would fix it all. You cannot make this shit up. And finally, this is a awfulsome moment from a guy who calls himself Dodging the Coat Hanger. He writes, So I'm in my early 40s and have decided to see a local plastic surgery about my weird penis. Okay, it's not that weird, but it is slightly curved. And because I'm a hypersensitive, obsessive, depressed, anxiety-ridden kind of guy, I decided, well, hell, I want a perfectly shaped penis. Time to take action. I should mention that I live in the boondocks, complete nowheresville. Lots of dirt roads, people screwing their relatives, etc. So there is not exactly a plethora of urological uh, plastic surgeons taking up ad space in our phone book. Anyway, I got referred to this bumpkin area's only plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon's office is my shit town's only strip mall. The only other person in the waiting room is a woman in her late 40s with a bandage on her nose. A nurse ushers me into the guts of the office and into an examining room I go. An old woman wearing a faded, new kids-on-the-block-themed sweatshirt comes in with a camera, smelling like vegetable soup, mothballs, and urine. She says, What's going on, sweetie? I answer like I always answer. Same old crap. At least I'm on the right side of the sod. She answers, By the grace of God. I nod but don't agree. The floor is covered with brown, threadbare carpet and smells like cigarette smoke. So, you have something uh, going on with your cock? This is where the awfulsomeness starts, my friends. Did this old woman, a supposed nursing professional with a Polaroid camera, really just say cock? Well, um, I say, I've got a little curvature going on, nothing too major. I'm really thinking the asshole that did my circumcision did a shoddy job. So it's a little uneven, just a slight curvature. Nobody's perfect. I think I'll just leave. She says, it's called pepperoni disease or some such. She meant pyronies. Yeah, well, I think I'll just go, I say again. Take your pants off so I can get some pictures, she says. Under her spell, I disrobe. I don't even have a chance to chub up a little. You shave your pubes, she said, positioning the camera inches away from my retreating, shrinking penis. That makes me itch. I just let mine grow anywhere it wants to grow. Yeah, I say, hey, where's the doctor? He ain't coming in today. This is preliminary investigation. He can fix it, you think, I say? The old woman shakes the developing Polaroid in the air. I don't know. We saw another gentleman with pepperoni disease, and he had to go to Atlanta. This looks simpler. It's like it's peeking around a corner. Everybody's got something. I was born without any kneecaps. When I bend down, I sound like the 4th of July. Before I leave the office, I find out that the old woman... And before I leave the office, I find out that the old woman knew J. Edgar Hoover when she worked as a waitress in Washington, D.C. She damn near killed her no-good daddy by bashing his brains in with a post-hole digger. She loved ballroom dancing, and lastly, she liked to quote Kierkegaard. Thanks for your help, I said on my way out, knowing I wouldn't do anything else about my barely curving ding-a-ling. I think I'll just let things roll. Honey, she said, you be good. And don't forget to love yourself. What a great one to end on. What a great one to end on. 168 minutes. 
I think this might be the longest one yet. Well, if you made it this far, thank you for hanging in there. And um, thank you for... Thank you for the surveys, all you guys that fill out the surveys. Even if I don't read yours on the air, um, they help me get to know you so much. And they help me feel less alone. They help me um, understand myself better and uh, have more empathy for myself. So thank you. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, um, just remember that you're not alone. And there's always hope. If you can just reach out for help, That's for me, that's where it started. And... Uh, most everybody I know. Um, so I hope you can do that. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.